lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Well, today's show is all about tomato varieties with one of the country's leading tomato experts, Craig LaHoulier, the author of Epic Tomatoes. In his book, Epic Tomatoes, you get a chance to have Craig mentor you through the wide, wide world of tomatoes. You learn how to grow and harvest with Craig's experienced advice. He's personally grown over 1,500 varieties of tomatoes. So the book is both practical and also beautiful. That's what really struck me is how gorgeous this book is. You would not believe the photography. Craig's uncovered much of the fruit's fascinating history, and today we're getting an introduction to meet 33 of Craig's favorite varieties of tomatoes. Now, that's a rare treat. If you're a lover of tomatoes, and the odds are good that you are because tomatoes are consistently ranked as the universal favorite edible then today's show will be a total thrill for you. Epic Tomato Varieties with Craig LaHoulier. That's the topic of today's show, and it's coming up after an update on the listener community for the show and this week's Garden News Roundup. First, I'd like to start out by saying thank you for listening to the Still Growing Podcast this week. If you're new to the show, a big welcome to you. And if you've been listening for a while, thanks for tuning back in. I hope you're listening to a lot of gardening podcasts. I say that every show. The show I'm particularly enjoying this week is Botanical Brouhaha. They actually had an article about a guest on their show, and I'm sharing it later in the Garden News Roundup, but I'm really enjoying Join Botanical Brouhaha. So if you haven't listened to it yet, go ahead and check that out. I think it's wonderful. Great guests and lots of great shows. Anyway, gardening podcasts are such a great way to grow and learn as a gardener. So make sure you fill up your playlist before you get in the car and then just let them roll every single week. You'll be amazed at how much better your skills are after a year of listening to gardening podcasts. It's such a great way to grow and learn as a gardener. And so truly, I'm very honored that you're spending some time here listening to the Still Growing Podcast. And if you'd like to continue the conversation, I'd like to invite you to join the listener community for our show. It's a free Facebook group, and all you have to do to find it is type in the words, Still Growing Podcast Group the next time you're in Facebook. And then this group will pop up and you can just request to join. It's that simple. There are a lot of different benefits for you by joining. First of all, you'll have access to all of the garden articles that I curate for the group. Second, it's the only place I'm going to go to pick lucky listeners for any of the show giveaways. Third, you get to interact with all of the guests that have been on the show. The majority of guests are in the group and they respond to questions. They're very helpful. Craig LaHoulier is in the group. So if you have tomato questions, you have access to an expert right there in the Facebook group. And as always, my promise to you 
is that there's no spam in this group. This group is something I work very hard to make sure is helpful and worthwhile for you. Everything that I post is curated with you in mind to help you and your garden grow. Plus, it's free and easy to join, so you have nothing to lose. Well, I'm thrilled to announce the winners of Deborah Baldwin's book, Designing with Succulents, the second edition. The winners are Laura Gonzalez and Chuck DeGarmo. So guys, the next time you're in the group, just private message me with your email and your address, and I'll make sure you get a copy of the second edition of Designing with Succulents by the Queen of Succulents, Deborah Lee Baldwin. And of course, that was featured on last week's episode, episode 586. Such a great book. Just gorgeous. You're going to love it. I'd also like to welcome the following new members to our group, Christy Eaton, Carol Valentino, Marissa Marie, Annette Gutierrez, and Mary Gray. Of course, they're the authors of the book Potted that we featured back in episode 581. Such a fun episode if you're a DIYer and you want to make your own outdoor containers. Martha Braithwaite, Holly Miner, Amy Walker Collier, Helen Wilson, Becky Davis, Laura Christian, Patricia Hawthorne, Linda Hostetler, Mike Ketchmar, Susan Walker, and Joanna Mango. Welcome, you guys. Hot topics in the listener community in the Facebook group this week included some folks who were out buying candles and lanterns for their gardens. Of course, this was after the episode that I did on Huga, the Danish phenomenon of instilling more coziness in your indoor and outdoor spaces. That was featured back in episode 583. And we're really coming into that season of Huga now that October's right around the corner. So if you want to up the coziness factor in your garden, give that episode a listen. Anyway, Sue Lufdig went and shared her picture of a fantastic lantern that she got on sale for just $13. I think it came complete with the candle. It's solar. It's just a fantastic steal. So many listeners share pictures and videos from their garden. But John Brian Silverio shared a truly stunning picture of a monarch butterfly on top of a flower in his garden, and the background was all blurred out, and it was just gorgeous. And he made a great point, which is the level of photography that you can achieve with your iPhone or your Android nowadays is just stunning. So don't be afraid to take pictures with your handheld device when you're in the garden. You might be surprised at the quality. Something I learned about my iPhone 7 recently is that when I am looking through the viewfinder on my iPhone 7, if I just tap the little circle at the bottom of the image, you'll see a small little circle, I can activate the other lens on the camera. So one of the focus areas is kind of far away. And then the other one is more close up. And it's just a quick way to achieve that. So give that a try if you have an iPhone. I think you have to have an iPhone 7, but it's a fun little hack to use on your iPhone 7 for your camera. 
I appreciate John sharing this in the group. And again, it's just so inspiring to see all of the things that can be accomplished with these handheld devices nowadays. Truly amazing. A special shout out to listener John Ryan, who joined our group. He shared a picture of a rhododendron that just really did not do well in the space where he's at. He was trying to figure out if it's going to come back next year. And my guess is no, John, based on how it looks, because it had turned so brown And we're not all the way through the summer yet. When he posted this picture, it was mid-September. So I'm not optimistic. And roadies can be very finicky about their space. The other thing I noticed is that this rhododendron is next to a chain link fence and there's lawn on the other side of it. So you never know if there are chemicals being put on that lawn that can be a factor when you have issues with plant material that's right on that property line. Then I'd also like to give a quick shout out and welcome to Nozomi Aoyama. Welcome to the group, Nozomi. She said, hello, everyone. And thank you, Jennifer, for the quick add to the group. I really feel this group is well taken care of by you. Well, that's the goal, Nozomi. So I'm very happy to see you here. And I hope the group is a place where you can feel supported and find great resources and a fun place to share your garden story. Don't forget, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, the show has a phone number. You can contact me at 865-333-GROW or 865-333-4769. Now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. This is a curated group of posts and articles that I've shared over the past week in the listener community in that free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group, and it's made up of a dozen different segments. And what's nice about it for you is that you can stay pretty informed about the news in horticulture each week just by listening to this part of the show. And you can easily check out these curated articles and posts for yourself because I share all of it with the listener community in that free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. So if you hear something and you want to read the full article, there's no need to take notes or track down links. Just head on over to the group and join. All right, I like to kick things off here with the guest update segment. I have a great post that Peggy Riccio shared. Peggy was back on the show in 577, episode 577, for the Garden Bloggers Fling. And Peg writes articles under a column that's called Peg Plant. And this week, she shared a great post called Drought Tolerant Okra Offers Colorful Pods in the Garden. This was an interesting article because when she was at Rooting DC for Washington DC last February, she received six seeds of African red okra from someone who was talking about preserving seed diversity. She was super curious about it. She planted them later in the season just to see how they would grow. Four of the six germinated, and out of those four, she managed to get two plants. All summer long, she's been watching them grow in her Virginia garden, and the flower is beautiful. Peg wrote, the flower of the yellow okra flower is similar to hibiscus. So if you'd like to try growing okra in your garden, check that article out in the group for yourself. 
Kathy Jentz was also a garden blogger who was featured back in the Garden Blogger Fling episodes, and she shared an article that has to do with losing a beloved pet. And of course, Kathy has the wonderful blog, Cats in Gardens. So her blog's a little bit of a mixture. It's a garden blog, but it's also a pet blog. So if you like that, check that one out as well. Finally, Marta McDowell with the Laura Ingalls Wilder book and also All the President's Gardens, shared a post recently about making preserves the way Ma Ingalls or Caroline Ingalls would have with ground cherries. This turned out really great. We actually talked about it over our lunch together when she came to town on her book tour. So just as she was inspired to try to plant ground cherries to have something from her research into the Ingalls Gardens, I'm inspired by this as well. So I just might try growing ground cherries next year in my garden. We'll see how that goes. And by the way, in Marta's post, she shares the recipe she used. So if you're interested, you can see that in the group as well. In sustainability this week, I shared an exciting post that was featuring what's being called America's largest suburban farm, and it's to be planted in Pittsburgh. Now, there are a couple of listeners of the show, like Sam Huff and Philip Busili, that live around Pittsburgh. So I have eyes and ears on the ground. I'd like to hear more about this. But in the article, this is what it said about this very large urban farm. There will be a fruit orchard, an almost one-acre youth farm. There will be a 3.36-acre farm incubation program, a 57-plot community garden. There will also be a three-and-a-third-acre community-supported agricultural farm, so a CSA. And then part of the urban farm will be a 200-person events barn and a farm market building where a seasonal farmer's market will occur. That sounds pretty exciting to me. Anyway, keep me posted on this one. I'd love to hear how it's turning out. In continuing, Ed, Rodale's Organic Life shared a post recently that was called What You Need to Know About Invasive Spotted Lanternflies and How to Get Rid of Them. Now, I really appreciated getting this because it was brought to my attention in the listener community by Marie Michael John, and she wrote this, My home is about an hour north of Philadelphia in Montgomery County. If there's anyone else from the group that lives in my general area, you should know about this invasive bug that has become a big problem. I just caught this spotted lanternfly on my porch. These insects are doing major damage to trees and shrubs, including grapes and fruit trees in our area. They were first discovered in 2014 in Berks County, Pennsylvania, and now are in my area. This one was about the size of a quarter, and when you spread the wings open, you can't mistake it with the beautiful red and yellow colors. And then she shared this article. Now, in the image, Marie shows what one of these lantern flies looks like, these spotted lantern flies. They kind of look like a box elder bug, except they're kind of grayed out, and then they've got these black spots. But the telltale sign to see if you've got the right insect is to gently take those wings and open them up, and you will see the irrefutable evidence of the red and yellow markings 
on the lower two wings. So if you have this problem, I'd like to hear a little bit more about it. And if you suspect you have this problem, you can always take one of those little guys and check it out. See if they've got those markings. Then you'll know for fact that you have a spotted lanternfly problem on your property, especially if you live out in the Pennsylvania area. Also in continuing Ed this week, the Spurs.com shared a really great article that was called Sweet Autumn Clematis Vines. Is sweet autumn clematis really so sweet? Well, I understand the confliction here because sweet autumn clematis, if you're seeing it this time of year, be ready because if you've never seen it before, you're about to fall over because it's gorgeous. It's usually tumbling all over the garden. It's got these prolific white poofy blooms and they really win your heart when they're blooming. But when they're not blooming, what you'll find is it's very invasive and it's almost impossible to eradicate in the garden. So I did exactly what I just described to you. I fell head over heels in love with it when I saw it in magazines and when I saw it on garden tours. And so I thought when I saw it at a plant sale in the spring, oh, sure, I'll plant this. And now I am vicious with it all year. I'm pulling it, I'm tugging at it, I'm cutting it, I'm ripping it out. And then after about the 4th of July, I let it have its way. And whatever manages to happen after the 4th of July, I let it happen. And so even now, if you go out into my garden, and here we are heading into October, that sweet autumn clematis is still blooming. And I still have people who come into my garden, take one look at that and say, what is it? I want to have it. But there's a little bit of a yin and yang thing going on with sweet autumn clematis. And if you have it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Anyway, I really appreciated this article that appeared in the spruce.com because it really captured the conflicted feelings that I have around this plant. So, and if you have it, you probably have the same. All right. Also in continuing, Ed, from Country Living out of England was this really nice post with seven expert tips for growing bearded irises. So if you had mixed success growing your bearded iris this year, maybe they didn't bloom, maybe you transplanted them and it didn't go so hot, let me share with you some of these tips. The first one, of course, is pick your spot. And once again, the theme of the summer is picking a well-drained, sunny site. So not so much the sun, but definitely the well-drained. I mean, over and over and over again, when there is a crop failure or a plant failure in the garden, that's one of the first questions I ask is, is it a well-drained area? Bearded iris like well-drained soil. They don't want to have wet feet or in this case, wet rhizomes. Another suggestion that I think goes along with that is planting high. This is the other thing that I find myself doing more and more, whether or not the plant is supposed to need it or not, but I will often plant now mounded up. I tend to plant a little bit higher the longer I garden. Of course, dividing iris is important, after a while, if you don't divide them, they will kind of just give up. In fact, my dear friend Judy had these gorgeous yellow irises that she was just known for. I think I actually got a clump of them from her. And over time, she just lost them. Now, she divided them and she had planted them high. But every now and then, especially in Minnesota with the cold, cold 
winters that we have and the very wet springs, you can lose beloved plants even if you have a ton of them. So sadly, that's what happened to Judy's beautiful yellow iris. So sometimes even if you follow all the best tips in the world, Mother Nature steps in and takes control. And then in addition to the other tips was this last one here that says, leave out the mulch. And I completely agree with this. Here's what it says. While many perennials love a nutritious mulch in autumn or spring, this is an absolute disaster for bearded iris. Avoid mulching at all costs as this will rot the rhizome and will kill off your iris plants. In the how-to DIY segment was a great post from Garden Up Green, where Carol shares with us how to preserve flowers using silica gel. And all she does here is fill up a small Tupperware bowl with silica, you know, that stuff that you'll see sometimes in purses or shoes, those little packets. Well, you can buy it in bulk. And actually, let me just take a quick peek here. If we jump on Amazon... Let's see how much it is. Okay, here you can get the same bag that she uses. You can prime it. Looks like for under 20 bucks from Amazon if you're into this. And basically all you do is you take cuttings of flowers and then you submerse them, you bury them in the silica gel. Now, what Carol does is she kind of tosses the blooms in, she gently covers them, kind of sprinkling them with the gel, and then she puts the lid on the Tupperware container, and she does that for about a week. It just kind of sits there. And Carol says this key piece of information, once the crystals turn pink or almost lavender, the flowers have dried. And the crystals are doing what they do best. They just remove moisture from the flower so that they dry without losing their beautiful appearance. And what a fun way to decorate a table or a tablescape or a mantle using these beautiful cut blooms. I love that idea. Also in the how-to DIY segment was something that was shared on Rodale's Organic Life. And it's how to grow hearty and delicious leeks in your garden. This is by Denise Foley. And she says, this sturdy backbone to many recipes also makes a tasteful addition to your garden. And she's got a gorgeous picture of leeks in this article. And I love how she starts this out. She says, for me, planning a vegetable garden has always been a simple equation. Small suburban garden plus a love of cooking equals make room for the most expensive vegetables. I love that strategy. And she says, this is how I started growing leeks. So great idea. She talks about how to do it. It's pretty straightforward, but you can read all about it in Denise's post. In the plant spotlight this week is a post that was shared on Ideal Home out of England. And the title of the post is called The Most Popular Flower Bulb for Spring 2018. And spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you what it is. Here's what they said. The most popular bulb for spring 2018 is the beautiful Narcissus Tete-a-Tete, a miniature daffodil, which has been a firm favorite for Brits over the past two years. So if you're placing those orders for bulbs for your spring flowering bulbs right now, which you need to be doing, see if you can get Narcissus Tete-a-Tete. And then finally, Cooking Light had a post that was all about gooseberries, and it was simply called, What Are Gooseberries? This one starts out this way. Common throughout Europe, 
but mostly unheard of in the United States. Gooseberries are rising in popularity throughout the country. And then they talk about all the wonderful things that you can do with gooseberries, where to find them, and also a little bit about red gooseberries, which are ripe and sweet, but are still a little sour, and then green gooseberries, which are less ripe and more tart. Here in Minnesota, we have an area that's called Gooseberry Falls. And listener Amy Steinhauser wrote in and said, hey, my folks used to go to Gooseberry Falls and pick gooseberries and then come home and make gooseberry jam and gooseberry preserves. So she has lots of childhood memories around gooseberries. Maybe this will inspire her to plant some in her garden this year. Here's a post that I found totally fascinating in the news over the weekend. And the heading of it says, if you come across a bent tree in the forest, start looking around immediately. Well, that's a pretty attention-grabbing headline. And here's the excerpt that explains it all. Native Americans would bend young trees to create permanent trail markers designating safe paths through rough country and pointing travelers toward water, food, or other landmarks. Over the years, the trees have grown, keeping their original shape, but with their purpose all but forgotten as modern life sprang up around them, that's why you might stumble across some trees that look like that. Now, even after all of this time, There's an estimated 1,000 bent trail marker trees all across the United States, of which some are 150 to 200 years old. And this means that their lifespan is probably coming to a close. So if you know about one of these trees, take a picture. I'd love to see it. And if not, and you happen to stumble upon one, if you're doing a nature walk or you're in an older forested area, it's kind of a nifty little fact to know. Also in the news, there was a helpful post out of House and Garden out of England. This one shares what to do in your garden in September. It's by Petersham Nurseries, head horticulturist Thomas Brown Hughes, and he offers 10 tips. I'm going to roll through them with you right now. First, pick the seed pods and heads of any open pollinated flowers you want to grow again next year. Great idea. Second, buy spring flowering bulbs. We just talked about that. So get your catalogs or get online and get those orders in. Third, early autumn is the ideal time to plant evergreen trees and shrubs so they get established while the soil is still warm. I think the window is closing on that, but you can definitely talk to a landscaper in your area and see if you can't get something installed quickly if you need it. Four, hardy annuals such as calendula, larkspur, nigella, and honesty can now be sown directly into the garden soil. This gives your cutting border a head start in the spring. Five, don't forget there are still quite a few varieties of autumn and winter vegetables that you can plant now, such as spring cabbage, purple sprouting broccoli, little gym lettuce, and Chinese cabbage, among many other options. Six, start a compost pile. Seven, congested clumps of perennials such as euphorbias and agapanthus, can be safely divided in autumn, so consider doing that. Eight, don't forget, if you have a greenhouse, you can still be dealing with pests and disease, so make sure you're getting on top of that, that you're not going into winter with a raging problem on your hands. 
Nine, and this one's so important, net ponds and water features before the leaves start to fall. This prevents debris from rotting in the water or blockages from getting into your pumps. This is a great tip. I loved this one. And then finally, the cut flower garden is still going strong. So you've got dahlias that are at their peak right now. Grasses are looking great. And you've got, for instance, branches that are filled with crab apples. Perennials like asters and anemones are wonderful in cut flower displays. So a great list here by Thomas. In the Dream Guest segment this week is Francois Weeks, and she's offering a new online course. Amy McGee wrote about this and shared it on Botanical Brouhaha, the site that has the new podcast that I like so much. Anyway, if you didn't get a chance to click on this post, it's called Win the New Francois Weeks Online Course. If you didn't click on that post because you maybe weren't interested in the course, boy, were you missing out on a visual feast because Francois Weeks is a gorgeous flower designer. She takes cut flowers and blooms and seed pods and makes the most unbelievable couture jewelry with flowers. I about passed out when I saw what she was doing here. There's an image of her making of an actual ring out of succulents. She made a necklace out of blooms and succulents of all different kinds. It's just amazing. And I would love to talk to her about how she does this. Talk about inspiring. I mean, this could go in the inspiration segment as well, but I just think she would be a fascinating person to talk to. I haven't had a chance yet to listen to this episode, but it is at the top of my playlist. The next time I'm driving the kids somewhere to basketball or something, I tell you what, that is going to be playing in my car. Can't wait. Francois Weeks. In Science This Week, listener Beth Engel shared a great post from the Caterpillar Lab. This is a group that you can follow on Facebook. Just search for the Caterpillar Lab. They've got great videos of caterpillars. And Beth shared this video of these little furry caterpillars, and I immediately thought of Tribbles on the Star Trek episode where Captain Kirk is fighting all these little furry blobs that were called Tribbles. Anyway, these caterpillars are just that furry. This video is getting tons of attention, and here's what it says in the subtitle. These Arizona flannel caterpillars are just about the most delightful creatures I have had the pleasure to work with. So what? They're venomous and have one of the most intense and painful stings of any caterpillar in North America. I can easily forgive them this as they meander around with their curly orange mohawks and little felted dongles. These guys look otherworldly. Oh, and then here, later on in the post, it says, this group of little tribbles will soon build cocoons, pupae, and eventually emerge as equally fluffy and charming moths. So look them up. Look up flannel caterpillar. The next time you're hanging out with some kids and you want to show them something cool, flannel caterpillars, and then what they look like when they turn into moths. Pretty awesome. 
And then they end their little excerpt here by saying, let's share these little monsters with the world. Feeling in love at the Caterpillar Lab, Sam. Well, thanks, Sam, for sharing that. And thanks, Beth, for bringing it to our attention. That was fun. I found the other post that made the science segment this week in Facebook as well. And it's from a site called Macro Bees. So the next time you're in Facebook, check out Macro Bees and then follow them because they share tons of videos and images about bees. This one in particular, I was really impressed with because it showed native bee antenna cleaning. So you have this bee and they show it at normal speed, this bee cleaning their antenna. And then they do the same shot all over again in super slow motion. And it's kind of strangely mesmerizing watching this bee clean their antenna. Didn't know they did that. Kind of reminded me of my dog, Sonny, when he has to clean his face or his nose, how he uses his paw. It really kind of looked like that in a weird sort of way. In Shopping This Week is a fun little book that I found on Amazon. It's about $20, and it's simply called 20 Ways to Draw a Tree. And I guarantee you, if you are drawing impaired and you would like to be able to draw even a basic tree, this book is going to get you all the way there. So check it out. It's on Amazon. It's $20. There'll be a link in the show notes for this episode. And it's simply called 20 Ways to Draw a Tree. Yay. Ooh, let's cover those recipes. There were a lot of good recipes that totally put me in the mood for fall this week. The first and my favorite is a butternut squash bake. So this is one where you fill up a 9 by 13 pan with your squash. And then, of course, you're covering it with cheese and all these wonderful little goodies to make for a wonderful dinner. So here's the ingredients. You take a butternut squash and you peel it and cube it and a half cup of mayo. Make sure you don't use low fat, just the regular stuff. You have a little bit of onion, an egg, a teaspoon of sugar, salt and pepper to taste. Then you add a fourth cup crushed saltine crackers, about eight crackers, some dried savory Parmesan and butter. So everything gets combined together. And you just save the cracker crumbs, cheese, and butter, and that gets sprinkled over the top. And then you bake it uncovered at 350 degrees for 30 to 40 minutes. And boy, does it look great. I love that idea. Looks like a squash lasagna. Botanical Interests shared a great post called Five Favorite Ways to Enjoy Roasted Garlic. This is from their Seed to Saucepan series. So these are garden-inspired recipes, lots of great ones on their site. Their recommendation that I really liked out of the five is using it for hummus. They said, try throwing some roasted garlic cloves in the food processor with chickpeas, lemon juice, and tahini. That's it. Then finally, there was a really fun post. It was actually shared on Business Insider, ironically. But this one is called How Eight of Your Favorite Chefs Make Guacamole. Now, this was interesting to me, hearing all the different ways people prepare guacamole. So I'll share what some of these celebrity chefs said. Tim Love uses lemon juice instead of lime juice. I was changing up a little bit there. Katie Lee makes it a little healthier with asparagus. She's on the Today Show there when she's doing that. Curtis Stone skips the tomatoes. So his is pretty simple. It's just ripe avocados, cilantro, touch of garlic, and lime juice. That's it. Oh, and he sometimes spices it up with a little cumin. 
And here's why he skips the tomatoes. He says, tomatoes give guacamole a funny color, and he likes keeping it bright. So skip the tomatoes, according to Curtis Stone. And then finally, the other tip that I really liked was from Alex Garnaschelli. I hope I'm saying her name right. She says, rinse your raw onions to make them less pungent. I didn't know you could do that. So rinse your raw onions to make them less pungent. Great idea. I'm going to try that one. Okay, then finally, in inspiration, there was a really fun video that was shared by Curbed Detroit, and it shows a Detroit flower shop on wheels. So we all know about the food trucks that park and show up at different venues around town, and then you can buy all these great little cuisine foods from these food trucks. Well, now you can do the same thing with this Detroit flower shop that's in a converted van to sell flowers. And so what this gal does is she drives up to different places in Detroit. She showed the example of driving up outside a boutique coffee shop and she stops by. She brings the owner some flowers. She gets a cup of free coffee. They kind of do a little bit of a swap there. And then she sells flowers to people that stop by the coffee shop. I thought it was a great idea. I loved that video. So fun. Very inspiring. And then finally, there was a really fun article that was shared by the Smithsonian. Very inspiring. Here's what it says. Why is America losing ground in the contest to grow the world's biggest pumpkin? Apparently, we're losing out because the biggest pumpkins are no longer grown in the United States. They're grown in other places all around the world. But what I found was super inspiring were the old photographs of some of the really large pumpkins that were grown in the United States in the early part of the last century, even the 1800s. The one that just caught my heart is this picture of this huge pumpkin. And they must have cut a hole in the top and then hollowed it out. And then they put this little toddler, this little girl, and she's inside the pumpkin, but her arm and her head are kind of sticking out of it. So she looks like a little fairy. She's got her finger in her mouth. And she says, or the caption for the photo is, a photo from an early 20th century magazine shows a child in a giant California pumpkin. Just so cute. Very inspiring. So if you want to help us reclaim the title, start growing pumpkins. All right. In the quotable segment this week, of course, the quotes are going to be about tomatoes. In Craig's honor, our guest for today, the author of Epic Tomatoes. And so here are the tomato quotes that I'll share with you in the quotable segment today. The first one's from Katherine Hepburn. My greatest strength is common sense. I'm really a standard brand like Campbell's tomato soup or Baker's chocolate. Then who can forget this one by Uma Thurman? She said this quote in the movie Pulp Fiction. Three tomatoes are walking down the street, a papa tomato, a mama tomato, and a little baby tomato. Baby tomato starts lagging behind. Papa tomato gets angry, goes over to the baby tomato, smooshes him, and says, catch up. Here's this one by Sidney Poitier. My father was a tomato farmer. There is the phrase that says he or she worked their fingers to the bone. Well, that's my dad, and he was a very good man. Here's one by Chef Tom Douglas. When I was a kid and my mom made tomato soup, she would cut buttered toast into squares and float them 
on top of each bowl. Oh my gosh, I love his mother. What a great idea. And here's another quote by Tom Douglas. In my Big Dinners cookbook, I recreated my mother's recipe for crab dip, the creamy dressing for this dip made with mayo, tomato paste, a touch of honey, sliced chives, lemon juice and zest, horseradish, and Tabasco is reminiscent of Thousand Island dressing. <laughs> Love that one. Here's a good one from Alice May Brock of Alice's Restaurant fame. Tomatoes and oregano make it Italian. Wine and tarragon make it French. Sour cream makes it Russian. Lemon and cinnamon make it Greek. Soy sauce makes it Chinese. Garlic makes it good. Andre Simone had this quote in the Concise Encyclopedia of Gastronomy. A cooked tomato is like a cooked oyster. Ruined. And then finally, this one from John Denver from the song Homegrown Tomatoes. It's a song written by Guy Clark. Here are the lyrics. Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes. What would life be like without homegrown tomatoes? Only two things that money can't buy. That's true love and homegrown tomatoes. Well, that's the Garden News Roundup for this week's show. Just a reminder, you can get all of these posts with links and bonus content in your Facebook feed. If you join the listener community for the show, the free Facebook group, just search for the Still Growing Podcast group the next time you're in Facebook and request to join. I'd love to meet you in the group. All right, with that, let's transition to the topic of today's show, Epic Tomato Varieties with Craig LeHoulier. Craig's book, Epic Tomatoes, was a 2016 Garden Writers Association Media Awards gold medal winner for Best Overall Book. And it's a beautiful book with cover art and graphics that pop, mainly with a chalkboard behind them. So lots of chalkboard graphics. I say they would make any coffee barista weep. You know how they do such a great job of chalkboard art in the coffee shops? Well, they have nothing on Craig's book, Epic Tomatoes. The art is gorgeous. Now, if you're a serious tomato grower, you're going to want to have your own copy of this book. It will become sort of a tomato Bible for you. Ira Wallace of Southern Exposure Seed Exchange said this about Epic Tomatoes. When Craig recommends a variety, we listen. And here's this great compliment from Diane Ott Wheatley, co-founder and vice president of Seed Savers Exchange. Craig LeHoulier has been on a marathon journey with this fruit for 35 years, growing and evaluating thousands of tomatoes. His hands-on knowledge is now entirely accessible in Epic Tomatoes. Craig's a practitioner. He grows thousands of tomatoes, starting them in his garage every single year. Craig's book, Epic Tomatoes, is the culmination of decades of a passion for collecting, researching, and growing hundreds of varieties of tomatoes. Craig lives in Raleigh, North Carolina with his wife, Susan, which is why his email is nctomatoman for North Carolina Tomato Man. 
Craig's passion for tomatoes exploded after joining the Seed Savers Exchange back in 1986. And all of his gardens since then have focused on open-pollinated, non-hybrid varieties in a wide range of colors, sizes, and flavors. Craig is responsible for naming, developing, and introducing many varieties of tomatoes such as Cherokee Purple and Lucky Cross and has been co-leading a unique all-volunteer project to create new dwarf-growing varieties. This project is responsible for 25 new tomatoes that are available through a variety of seed companies, particularly valuable for space-constrained gardeners who wish to grow wonderful tomatoes on decks or patios. Craig is the tomato advisor for Seed Savers Exchange. In the last 30 years, he has trialed more than 1,200 tomato varieties and has introduced more than 100 varieties to the trade. He lectures widely, and today we get him all to ourselves. So get out your garden journal, and at the top of the page, I want you to write 2018 Tomato Wish List. Let's make some exciting tomato choices for our gardens next year with the master himself. Here's Craig LaHoulier, North Carolina tomato man with epic tomato varieties. Well, welcome, Craig, to Still Growing. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. It is so nice to be here. Geez, how did you know that I like to talk about tomatoes? <laughs> what was the giveaway? I think it was the title, Epic Tomatoes. And I have to say, I love that title. How did you come up with Epic Tomatoes? Well, I have to thank my friends at uh, Story Publishing. It was my first book, and it's hard to believe it's two and a half years now since the book came out, meaning it's probably four and a half years since its conception. And it, it was magic. And it's amazing to me that you can sit at a laptop and crank out 90,000 words and they send photographers to your house and you know that you've got all these pretty tomatoes are photographing and you send it off. And then lo and behold, one day it's, it's a cold December day and you look out and there's this little package sitting on the porch and you open it up and this book arrives. So I, I knew a few months before that they had chosen Epic Tomatoes and, you know, you have to warm up to book titles. And I've had a few comments saying, well, is that kind of egotistical to, to think that you know what which tomatoes are epic? And then I thought, well, really, what does epic mean? It means noteworthy. It means important. It means something that stands out. And to tell you the truth, a lot of the tomatoes in that book, it's not only my opinion, but they're epic in terms of their historical importance, their excellence, their beauty, their diversity. So I grew to accept and to love the title Epic Tomatoes, but I really had nothing to do with titling the book. And I was also going to add the crowd appeal, because is there any vegetable more universally loved than the tomato? <laughs> I feel very, very fortunate that um, the, the vegetable gods have chosen me to be one of the people who represents the tomato. And I've shared this story with quite a few people, but so many people have sent me their wonderful, beloved, valued tomatoes over the years that I am not sure that I had any choice in this matter at all. I think this is the case where the crop picks the victim. 
And I, I do feel extremely fortunate that this vegetable of such great nostalgia, you know, when, when we think of a tomato, a lot of us are reminded of our grandparents or our parents and Sunday drives to go to a farm stand to pick up some tomatoes and our parents pick them out really carefully and they put them in the brown paper bag and we come home and we have a cookout and those tomatoes get sliced and put on burgers or whatever. So I actually think you could pick out um, any tomato lover in the country and they would, or any gardener in fact, and they would have some kind of a special relationship with the tomato as a signpost of summer, something they anticipate the most. So yeah, it's, uh, I'm quite pleased that the book's title is not Epic Kohlrabi, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and I have to ask you too, because I, you know, I love books. I, I'm a book collector and I love looking through how the books are laid out. And one thing that I noticed, and I, and I don't know if anybody's ever talked to you about this, but most people associate the color red with tomatoes. And the tomato on the cover of your book is a yellow tomato. So what tomatoes on the cover of your book and can you tell us about it? You know, I am so delighted that you asked about that because in the two and a half years I've spoken to people about the book, no one has ever asked that particular question. And I have to admit, um, total surprise when I started seeing some of the mock-up designs and they picked the tomato uh, Green Giant to be on the cover of the book, which has that pale yellow green color. And if you were to cut that tomato open, it would be emerald green inside, but it would taste like the best red tomato you've ever eaten. So I have to think that there's, there's a few elements of distinctiveness that story must have chosen. I think the chalkboard covering the design, the, the black background color and that green tomato, they wanted to make the book pop. And uh, again, you know, when you write a book on tomatoes, you think of previous gardening books and I'm thinking, well, are they going to have a picture of me smiling with a tomato in my garden or a picture of my tomatoes? I actually think they picked the perfect cover. And I have to really thank Carolyn Eckert's story and, and her crew for um, coming up with the design. Many, many people ask or comment on the uniqueness of the design and how much they like how the cover looks. But you are the first person asked why a green tomato on the cover. And the other perfect thing about that question is it also indicates that people in America who we're, we're taught to eat with our eyes, we're taught to eat based on what we find in grocery stores, but we've moved, we've moved the goalposts now and we have accepted that a tomato of any possible color can wind up in our garden or on our plate and we will just devour it with, with great gusto. So there's a, a long answer to a very short question for you. <laughs> I'm so glad that you touched on the design of the book, because as we all know, you can write a wonderful book, but if it's not attractive to consumers, it's really hard to get that mass appeal. And people do comment about this book. As I was mentioning to people, yeah, I'm talking to Craig, you know, author of Epic Tomatoes. They would say, oh, I love that book. It's so pretty. And I was talking to a friend last night and I said, you know, the pictures in this book, what I kept thinking about over and over and over again is that if you framed some of these images from your book and sold them as interior art for the kitchen or the dining room, I think they would be a hit. It, they're absolutely gorgeous. 
Um, again, th- thanks to the credit for the photographers and uh, the design, but I, I have to tell you a story about that. Well, well maybe two stories. So when, when you write a book, you think, well, there are going to be words that you're going to come up with. And to tell you the truth, Epic Tomatoes has been brewing, not titled Epic Tomatoes, but I, I became involved in the Seed Savers Exchange in 1986 and developed this passion to, for tomatoes and with passion comes knowledge. So my wonderful wife, who is Sue of Dwarf Sweet Sue fame, the tom- one of my favorite dwarf tomatoes, we can talk about that at, at another point. She has been on me kindly, but um, for years to write my book on tomatoes. And her comment was, you're, you know, you're, you're giving all this information away. So it was time to write the book. So I thought, okay, sit down. All this knowledge is in there. It kind of screamed out onto the laptop. The book writing process was enjoyable. It, it wasn't that difficult for this first book, probably because it was so pent up. However, no one really, I wasn't ready for the challenge of growing a crop as finicky as tomatoes, as many heirlooms as I tried to grow in a place like North Carolina and get them to ripen in the way we wanted them to ripen in healthy fashion at, at the right time. So we had some interesting discussions where, you know, Story would say, well, the photographer wants to come out next Tuesday and all 50 of your varieties will, will be ready and ripe to photograph. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's not how gardening works at all. These these tomatoes are going to ripen when they want to. <laughs> and and the two years that I gardened for the book, of course, all kinds of diseases hit and tomatoes that previously did really well were not doing so well. So um, a few hairs fell out, a few hairs turned gray. Um, there was ample stress through the tomato ripening process. We were sending, I was picking tomatoes half ripe and sending them to the story offices up in Massachusetts. I was driving tomatoes to a warehouse in Virginia so that we could put them under lights and uh, photograph them. And I guess the the last comment I wanted to make on the photography is one of the pictures near the front is a double page spread and it has an array of all kinds of tomatoes laid out on a wooden board of different shapes and sizes. And the story, um, my editor said they sent that page out to their test readers and some of the comments came back of concern that the tomatoes weren't perfect and round and red and some of them had cracks and some of them were kind of funny looking and had odd colors. And that's when I said, perfect. I, if I'm going to write a gardening book, it has to be a book that is going to touch people of every gardening expertise level. If people are going to grow tomatoes, they need to realize they are not going to look like a photoshopped picture in a seed catalog or a magazine. Some of them are going to be cracked and funny looking and creased and folded and cat faced. That's okay. We're growing tomatoes with personality, with distinction, with incredible histories and stories behind them. And uh, I was most pleased, perhaps, about the picture that the test readers had the most questions about. So, how's that for irony? And what I find interesting about it is that is the very first image that I saw, that two-page spread with all of those tomatoes kind of lined up like Skittles, like taste the rainbow, right? Because they're all colors here. And it's kind of, you know, the shades, the hues kind of drop down from red down to yellow. And I thought if this was a poster, I would totally buy it and hang it in my kitchen. That's how much I loved this two-page spread. Well, about two, about a three-hour photo shoot because it was, so I had all these tomatoes with me, 
And only I knew what the variety names were. And there were some little slips of paper for some that looked the same. And I believe in truth in advertising. I don't believe in substituting a different pink tomato for brandy wine just because brandy wine didn't ripen, but a German Johnson did. So we laid these all out on board. We placed all the little stickers. They got the light right. They had to do photographs and they had to go in and we had to remove all the little tags and they had to reshoot. And then they had the little tags on a chart so that they could photograph that. So, you know, the simplest little photograph in a book can take hours. And, uh, I, you know, and so I got to do some video um, the last few years with Joe Lample for a spot on Growing a Greener World. Between the book and photography and between the video with Joe, I have to say that I am happy that I am the person that writes the words because I don't have the incredible patience and talent for people that can create beautiful um, photographs and beautiful video. It, it's just an incredibly underrated, underappreciated skill. And I now, I think I fully appreciate it having gone through this process. I know that you and I talked in the pre-chat and you said that it took two photographers and thousands of images to get this <laughs> book together. And I know you might not know the answer to this question, since you're the writer and not the photographer expert, but I have got to know because this is driving me crazy. How did they incorporate the shadows of the tomatoes on so many of these images? So in other words, for people listening in Craig's book are all these amazing pictures of, you know, hundreds of tomatoes and then if they're doing just an individual shot of these gorgeously shined up tomatoes, there's no water spots. They look fantastic. <laughs> Even if they're cracked or a little bit imperfect, that's not the point. They look fantastic. They're, they look, they look show ready, but how did they get the shadows? Do you know how they did that? Yeah. I, well, I didn't see them do it, but those um, shadows were all done in the photography room up in, um, story Publishing's offices in Massachusetts, um, and all of those were taken by um, the they were taken by the photographers there from tomatoes either sent up or or get this. The other thing I did in the spring is I had extra plants of all of my favorite varieties, so I was shipping plants to other people who worked for Story Publishing. They were all planting them in their gardens as fail safes. So we had. We had so many different redundancies built in. So if they weren't if they weren't ripening in time in my yard, then I could let them ripen later, and I would ship them up. Or some of my seedling customers, I was driving all over Raleigh to get tomatoes from their garden to ship up, or I was transporting them to a uh, photographer's uh, place in Richmond, Virginia, or 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 story was getting them from their other employees from the gardens from the plants that I grew. So. Uh, there were some Excel spreadsheets. There were lots of phone calls. There were project plans built around this. And uh, But nature always holds the trump card. And, you know, best laid plans of mice and men. How many different sayings can we come up with? But the tomatoes ripen when they want to ripen. And some of them were really, really touch and go. And uh, But, you know, in retrospect, that was a lot of fun as well because, you know, <laughs> Even though it stresses you out at the time, it doesn't do you in. You recover from it. Now I can look back at it fondly as one of the more fun parts of it and that you're, you're, you're working so hard to create your favorite varieties just for this purpose. And it means that sometimes in gardening, serendipity 
you can get better results if you're not absolutely planning every second for things to guarantee success on a particular date because nature will always throw a curveball at you and things will happen when they're meant to happen, not necessarily when you plan them to happen. <laughs> I love that point. And you know, the other thing too that I think it's it's a perfect segue into is really tapping into your wheelhouse, which is your expertise in growing so many different kinds of tomatoes. And one of the things that we touched on early on in our chat is that Absolutely. We could talk about growing tomatoes and tapping into your doctor expertise, you know, doctor tomato, <laughs> what's wrong with my tomato. But all of that information is usually available in many other places. What's not available is talking to someone who not only loves tomatoes, but has grown the breadth of varieties that you have. So today, let's tap into your wheelhouse. Let's make sure that we really talk about all of these different tomatoes that you've cultivated, not only to grow for yourself and your family and your friends, but also you've cultivated your love for these tomatoes and your appreciation and understanding of them. So why don't we do a deep dive on tomato varieties that are featured in your book? And I can't think of another tomato that warrants the top spot other than Cherokee purple. So let's start there. Cherokee uh-huh. purple. <laughs> Yeah, well, first I'll say to the to the to the person who may be growing five tomatoes. When I started gardening in 1981, I grew two varieties of tomatoes. So, I what I will I will never think that anyone who grows anything has anything up in anybody else. What I will say is, if you grow one or two tomatoes, you may be on a journey to grow lots more, and it's just fun. It opens up the whole world to you, but to get back to Ferricky Purple. So, gosh, I have thought about that tomato. I've talked about that tomato so many times, and no tomato really exhibits um, to me that funny little quip that I said at the beginning that I'm I'm just been tapped on the shoulder by nature to be uh, a tomato transmitter. You know, why would why would Mr. Green from Sevierville, Tennessee, decide that I was the guy to send the seeds to of an unnamed tomato at the time, a purple tomato that he had in his possession that he got from, you know, friends or neighbors who had them in their family for a hundred years and originally got them from the Cherokee Indians. So there was this already this link, this multi-link chain reaching from my first receipt of those seeds in Pennsylvania, 1990 from Mr. Green. And then that chain then reaches forward when I when I share it with Jeff McCormick of Southern Exposure Seed Exchange and share it through the Seed Savers Exchange, and then Jeff sells it in his catalog, and then all of a sudden you find it at every farmer's market you walk into. So in a way, Cherokee Purple was the tomato that seemed to come along at the right time to help people understand what an heirloom could be not only in terms of it's a tomato that can be handed down or a tomato that has a story associated with it or a tomato that can have this really unique color. And in fact, the color was so off-putting to Jeff McCormick of Southern Exposure that he thought it was far too ugly to ever become popular. But yet he carried it in his seed catalog because of its, of its incredibly delicious flavor. So uh, again, I, I just feel very, very fortunate that the tomato came to me 
but you know, you could break any one of those links of the chain. If the Cherokee Indians didn't develop it or find it themselves, if they didn't share it with the people who share it with Mr. Green, if he didn't decide to share it with me, if it didn't do well in my garden in Pennsylvania, if the seed didn't germinate, if it had been crossed up and it wasn't purple anymore, if I decided not to send it to Mr. McCormick, if Jeff didn't sell it in his catalog. And and maybe this is one of the more interesting aspects of Cherokee Purple of all is that um, I feel really lucky that I get to do some events that are quite special. And one of the ones I've been asked to do down here is I get to help teach a cooking school at a, at a really good place, a Southern season. And I get to share the stage with someone who's made his name growing Cherokee Purple tomatoes and selling them at a local farmer's market. So the first time we did this together was, I think, 2007. We're on stage. I had never met Alex. And in his introduction, he said, well, Craig doesn't know this, but he sent me seeds in 1992 because he was one of the few subscribers to a newsletter that I put out with Carolyn Mayo called Off the Vine. He, he was looking for a feature tomato, so he subscribed to our, our newsletter. He was one of the first to get Cherokee Purple. He grew it. His customers loved it. And he is known in farmer's market for selling his Cherokee Purples. And all of a sudden, 15 years later, we get to share the stage together. We get to meet the person who named Cherokee Purple, the person who's made his career selling Cherokee Purple. So I don't know how many weird stories like this pop up around this tomato, but it's full of them. (laughs) I love it because to me, it's the Jack and the Beanstalk equivalent. It's kind of a divine alignment for you. And it really, this book would have never probably come about without all the adventures that Cherokee Purple has afforded you. That, That tomato actually helped me to get, I guess you could say, get to where I got in terms of having an opportunity to write a book on tomatoes. And when you think I started, this whole thing started off when I got married in 1980, my wife and I said, well, the first thing we want to do is have a garden. And that first garden in 1981 had Better Boy in Roma. And I think the other piece of this is I had this personality of liking lots of variety. So, you know, some people, if they taste a Ben and Jerry's chocolate chip and they love it, they'll say, well, I don't need to go beyond this. I love this chocolate chip. I don't need to taste any others. I would taste every flavor of Ben and Jerry. So I've done the tomato version of that. As I've discovered these tomatoes of excellence over the year, it hasn't narrowed me down to make me stop growing different ones. It has sent me on a path to keep searching, thinking there's always going to be something with a different story or a better story or a different color or a better flavor. So I guess, I guess they call that a secret personality where I just, I'm always kind of seeking and never settling, um, kind of drives my wife crazy a little bit, but she's, a, she's great quilting is her thing. And she's, kind of going down the same path with the quilts that she makes. So I think we all have something that we can't get enough of and that we take a deep, broad dive into. And, uh, you know, so tomatoes are my swimming pool. What can I say? Yeah, tomatoes are your thing. Well, you're (laughs) definitely a cool finder when it comes to tomatoes. There's a two-page spread that I also thought was very fascinating. And bear in mind that for some listeners, this will be the first time that they're hearing about this. But you spend two pages talking about tomatoes with wild origins. Of course, we're talking about Mexico midget and coyote. 
Yeah, both of these tomatoes came to me right around the same time as Cherokee Purple. And and what was happening at the time is I was into the Seed Savers Exchange, but I had also joined Seed Swaps from two two of the best gardening magazines at the time, which is Organic Gardening and National Gardening Association. And those Seed Swap columns were great. And, you know, I don't think if they had social networking and email and all of that stuff back then, this whole thing about sharing seeds would have developed the way it did, but you couldn't get in a computer and write somebody an email and ask for something. You'd have to sit down with a pen and a paper and write somebody a letter and introduce yourselves to them. And you, you create these friendships made of pen and ink. And, and that's also patience. It takes time to write a letter. So I was writing letters to people asking for seeds, people writing letters to me, asking for seeds, sending seeds back and forth. Cherokee purple came to me in that way. Lillian's yellow heirloom. Um, so many at the time, but then one letter I got, and it was back in 1990, was this elderly man named Barney Lehman in California. And he shared Mexico midget with me as what he called a Josh or a joke tomato, because he said, it's the tiniest thing you'll ever see. His brother, um, acquired the seed because he delivered hay between Mexico and Texas. And he claimed that it was a tomato that grew wild in Mexico. So I grew it, and I had never seen a tomato the size of a pea. And one of the slides that I like to show is I actually went to Trader Joe and got a pea pod, sugar snap pea, took out the four peas, and I can comfortably fit four Mexico midgets in there. So when I say pea-sized, I mean pea-sized. The thing is, the flavor is incredible. And now when I talk locally, and if I've got a Mexico midget growing, I always bring a little bowl of these. And I just look at people's faces when they take a bite because they can't believe a tomato so tiny can taste so good. So I think that if you look at a Mexico midget, you're probably looking at perhaps the ancestral tomato, the tomato that started it all thousands of years ago on the coast of South America that made its way to Central America. And then through mutations and crosses and just time, the people there worked it up into the larger tomatoes and then it made its way to Spain and it made its way through Europe. But Mexico midget's a particular tomato that's very hard to germinate. It's the only one in my collection. It doesn't germinate the same way that other tomatoes do. The best way to get them to grow is grow it in a pot, let some drop in, leave the pot outside all winter long, and then look in that pot when it starts warming up and all of your little Mexico midget seedlings will start germinating. So it almost seems like it needs a layering or a freezing or some, ty- some type of a variable frost freeze, dry, wet, something to wake it up. If I send seeds to people, it takes them sometimes two months to germinate using the standard method. But people are on Raleigh when I sell my seedlings. If, so if I didn't sell three plants, Cherokee Purple, Sun Gold, or Mexico Midget, I would disappoint almost all of my customers because that is where their primary addictions Local addictions seem to lie. Coyote, I would call a white version of it. It's about the same tiny size. The way that came to me was wonderful. I was at a Philadelphia flower show just at the beginning of my love affair with heirloom tomatoes. and I had a display of all these types. And this lovely woman named uh, Mae Clement came up to me with this little cluster of tomatoes she clearly just picked from her garden. I'd never seen anything that color. They were almost snow white. And she just says, I just wanted to bring these to me. Uh, my family brought them from Veracruz, New Mexico. I mean, Veracruz, Mexico. They call them tomatoes, silvestri, amaryllis, 
or coyote. And so the first year I, she sent me the letter with the name the year after she gave them to me. So I listed them the first year in the seed savers exchange as white currant because they look like a currant tomato and they're white. But anybody who sees the tomato white currant, it is the same as coyote. And I corrected that the second year. It is a love hate tomato. When people taste it, it is so sweet. They either don't like the flavor at all or they crave it. So two very different. And, and we've spent some time talking about the two tiniest tomatoes that anyone will ever see, which is pretty cool. Here's a blast from the past, Alexander Livingston. Alexander Livingston. So when I think of Livingston, I think of the old seed catalogs that would say, we're we're trying to create the earliest tomatoes, so we only pick and save seeds from the first tomatoes that ripen on a plant. And the next year, they would get a tomato that doesn't ripen any earlier, because what they didn't understand is within a stable variety, the seeds on every tomato plant have the same genetic material. So Livingston in the 1870s discovered that what you do is you plant a field of a particular variety and you look for a plant or two that are distinctly different. You save seeds from the tomatoes on just those plants because whether the bees have done a cross, whether some recessive trait has decided to show itself, whether there's a mutation, that is how you do improvements. So until the Livingston Company was formed in the 1870s, there were very few true improvements in tomatoes at the time. They were pretty lumpy. They were pretty large. They had a lot of scars and uh, core and waste. And Livingston, using his single plant selection methodology, understood tomato breeding. And he was using selections and growing big fields and just finding something that was different and wonderful and he'd plant a feel of that and call out all the ones that didn't meet, meet his standard. So between 1870 and about 1920, he put out somewhere around 30 or more tomatoes that were the first true, truly improved varieties. And, you know, the thing is, they didn't look like the heirlooms that we crave today. What they were looking for back then, because you think a lot of people gardened in the late 1800s, early 1900s to preserve. They wanted a good canning tomato. They wanted a tomato that wasn't blemished or cracked that they would keep. So when you do grow a lot of Livingston varieties, if you're familiar with the big, lumpy, colorful heirlooms, you might be disappointed and think, these just look like smaller supermarket tomatoes. The flavor is there. It's just that we've come full circle. The original tomatoes in the 1840s, 1850s were lumpy and ugly. Livingston made them round and pretty. Now, with the advent and discovery of all these weird colored formed heirlooms, we've gone back to thinking that the tomatoes that are going to taste best are funny looking and funny colored and lumpy and ugly. So, But what does that tell you also? That we've only really been eating tomatoes in our country since about 1850. So it is a crop, relatively speaking, in its infancy, and we're still seeing surprises pop out all the time. Another person that we owe a debt of gratitude to in terms of tomatoes is Lillian Bruce. Lillian Bruce. So Lillian apparently was an elderly woman who lived in Manchester, Tennessee, and her sons would go out and visit fairs and markets and bring home interesting produce to her. So they brought her a red tomato and a yellow tomato. And she grew them. And she shared the seeds with a fellow named Robert Richardson in New York, who was a member of the Seed Savers Exchange. He never 
grew them out, but he didn't have room in his garden, but he knew that I loved tomatoes. So he sent me seeds of the red, which he called Lillian's Kansas red paste and the yellow, which was simply the label was Lillian's yellow. Number one, it never even was given a name. So I grew them both and the red is wonderful. It looks like a little heart shaped or a paste tomato and it's very, very delicious. But the yellow one made such an impression on me that um, I was very fortunate to be on Lynn Rosario Casper's Splendid Table two years ago. And she, her last question to me was, what are my three desert island tomatoes? I got to go live on the desert island. I can only take three varieties with me. And the three I chose were Sun Gold, which is a little orange hybrid cherry tomato, which many people think is the most delicious tomato they've ever eaten. Cherokee Purple, of course, because if it's historical significance and the part I get to play in it, but Lillian's Yellow Heirloom. The plant is potato leaf, the fruit are a pound to a pound and a half. It's a clear lemon yellow, almost a white color. But when you taste it, the flavor is incomparable. So anyone who thinks that a yellow tomato or an orange tomato or a pale colored tomato that lacks the flavor intensity of the darker colored tomatoes, they need to taste the Lillian's Yellow. And it's late. It's not the easiest one to grow. It can be really finicky. But once you taste it, it may kind of change your your tomato palate forever, and it probably will be in your garden every year, and you will probably count the days until you harvest your first one. Uh, interestingly, my plant this year got hit by a tomato-spotted wilt disease, and this will be my first year without a ripe Williams Yellow Heirloom in maybe 20, and uh, so next year I'm going to grow at least two plants. <laughs> Wow. And, you know, one thing I'd love for you to stress a little bit is how beautiful the color is on this tomato. Because when I turned the page and saw Lillian's yellow, I kind of gasped. It's like such a striking yellow. Yeah, it's definitely a pale canary yellow. So when they get very ripe, occasionally you'll see radiating out from the blossom end a pearly pink blush. And it's just very, very pale. And it doesn't really bleed into the heart of the fruit. So it's not one of the yellow tomatoes with red swirls. It is a true yellow. But sometimes the genes in it just allow it to express just a little bit of pink. The other interesting thing when you slice it open is that, you know, the term beefsteak tomato arose in the late 1800s when a seed company was selling a tomato that when they cut it, the slices looked like a slab of steak because the seed cells were so tiny that it looked like it was solid meat. Well, Lillian's yellow is a beefsteak in that regard in that you'll see just the tiniest of seeds locules or seed cells spread throughout. And if you, you, you could pick a one pound or more Lillian's yellow and try to squeeze the seeds out of that, and sometimes you may get no more than 12 or 15 or 20 seeds out of an entire tomato. Whereas if you were to do the same thing to a Cherokee purple, you'd get 150 or 200 seeds from it. So Lillian's yellow is a seed saver's nightmare. Seed companies that are growing it for seed probably consider it a a nightmare because they have to grow so many more plants to harvest so many more fruit to be able to fulfill the seeds that have to go into the packet. Um, But it is, uh, so I guess um, you could say that I like it, hey? (laughs) We must suffer sometimes for the things that we love, We must suffer. That's exactly right. Life is tough for the tomato lover. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Well, I loved how you started out your section on brandy wine tomatoes. Here's what you wrote. 
Those who think of the world of gardening as idyllic and peaceful would be surprised at the level of rancor, disagreement, and misinformation surrounding a simple tomato name, Brandywine. Tell us everything, Craig. How is Brandywine so afflicted? So, um, the source of the confusion of Brandywine are probably the fact that it was listed in a catalog in the 1880s as Brandywine, but the artwork shows it as a red tomato with regularly foliage. Um, Flash forward some decades, and Ben Quisenberry, who was an elderly seedsman, he was in his 90s in the 1980s. That, That sounds like confusing math, but I'll repeat that. In the 1980s, when he became known to the Seed Savers Exchange, he was already in his 90s, and he collected this tomato called Brandywine from a family uh, named Suduth, S-U-D-D-U-T-H. And it was a pink, large pink, one-pound potato leaf variety. Um, so we already then are starting this confusion where we have a Brandywine whose color is red. We have a Brandywine whose color is pink, and they have different foliage and different sizes. All of a sudden, appearing in the Seed Savers Exchange is a variety called Yellow Brandywine. Um, there was never in any seed catalogs a variety named Yellow Brandywine, but there was a tomato called Shah, S-H-A-H. Shah was described as, you know, this is where it gets really fun, a mutation of its sister tomato, Mikado. Now, Mikado was a large pink potato leaf variety that fits the description of Brandywine. So there is no way we can ever unravel all of this because we don't actually have seeds from the 1880s any longer that we could go back and DNA test to find out. But the lesson of Brandywine and synonyms and renamings really strikes at the heart of one of the confusing things about heirloom tomatoes in that if you were a member of the Seed Savers Exchange right now and uh, and got their annual yearbook, you could choose over 10,000, and that is 1,000 different named tomatoes to grow. Now, we know, we, we almost certainly know, those of us who have grown a lot of them in some of the uh, comparison studies that have been done in the literature, there probably are not over 10,000 unique tomatoes. But what happens through the years uh, you know, let's say there's a tomato called, well, well, we'll use that variety, Brandywine. We get Brandywine. The family's been growing it for 10 or 20 years. They give it to another family and somebody tries it and they say, that's a great tomato. That's my favorite. Well, Uncle Charlie just ate that tomato. And somebody says, what tomato is that? That's Uncle Charlie's favorite. Brandywine has now picked up a second name and it gets passed on to people as Uncle Charlie's favorite. Uncle Charlie's favorite through the years gets grown. Maybe that's called Joe's Delight somewhere down the line. So with a lot of tomato varieties, certainly through the years, different names have been associated with them. Now, there's nothing we can do to untangle that. We have to keep the history of any given variety attached to it to avoid confusion. But if we, if somebody wanted to spend a lot of money and do DNA testing, it, we could probably unravel some of the tomatoes in various collections and find out that some of them that had very different names were probably the same tomato. They just picked up a different one. Brandywine may be one of the extreme cases 
where it may be no more than two or three tomatoes, but through the years, there's maybe five, six, seven, maybe as many as 10 different names associated with it. However, that shouldn't obscure the fact that if people get brandy wine, the big, pink, delicious potato leaf variety, and grow it well, they could be eating the best tomato they will ever eat in their entire life. It is potentially that wonderful. You know, there is another story that I thought was equally as interesting as the Brandywine controversy, and that is the brother and sister plants to Cherokee Purple and how those evolved, how that happened for you. I found that very sure. interesting. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, so any any gardener who grows a lot of things through the years knows that you know, they'll buy a six pack of marigolds and there's a mystery plant in there that, that doesn't look like a marigold or they'll grow 10, they'll, they'll open up a package of pepper seeds and they'll, they'll see seeds in there that don't look like pepper seeds and they grow them. I, I call it growing the mystery out. And maybe when we're early in gardening or we don't have all that much room, we just toss the mysteries because you know what? I want to put marigolds in front of my mailbox and I don't really care what this other plant is. But then if you garden enough and if you have um, a personality tilted towards extreme curiosity, you almost find that growing the mystery becomes more fun than growing what you expect it to be. So your garden almost becomes filled with the plant that's not the marigold and the seeds that aren't the pepper seeds. So uh, why, why I mention that story is as from about 1986 to maybe the early 90s, I focused a lot of my gardening on growing heirlooms, getting as many different types out of the seed savers exchange as I could. Also, the USDA database, looking for varieties that my grandfather and grandmother might have grown. But then things started happening in my garden. So one year I was, it was 1995, gardening here in North Carolina. And I had eight Cherokee purples growing, and one plant was starting to ripen tomatoes that instead of the dusky, rosy purple color, were turning a mahogany, chocolatey color. And I thought, well, this is really curious. It's clearly a black tomato. Black tomatoes have very dark flesh because they're retaining some of the chlorophyll while they ripen. It gives them a very dark color. But it has a different skin color that's making it look chocolate instead of purple. So... I, I love the flavor. It was really the same as Cherokee Purple in every other respect. It's health and it's yield and the fruit size and the excellence of quality. But I thought, well, maybe it's just a cross and it's a hybrid. And if I save seeds from it and grow a few, I'm going to see all kinds of different things the next year. So I grew a bunch and they were all chocolate. And then I started sharing them with people and they got all chocolate. And I was just very, very lucky that the seed that I planted that created that plant must have experienced a slight genetic shift or mutation for skin color, where the skin color went to yellow instead of clear. That carried through and became a stable new variety. And the first year I had it, I just called it Cherokee Brick Red Cross because I thought it was a cross. But then once it proved to maintain its chocolate coloring, it's now Cherokee chocolate. And, uh, you know, I, I I grow all three every year, Cherokee purple chocolate and green, and I love them all. So Cherokee chocolate then, I grew a whole bunch of those a few years later, like I always like to, in one plant. The tomatoes were big, and I was waiting, when's it going to ripen? When's it going to turn? Waiting, waiting, and then tomatoes started rotting and dropping off the plant. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I got a tomato that's staying green when it's ripe. So 
So I grabbed a few that hadn't rotted yet, and the fruit flies really kind of told me what was happening because they found it very interesting once the tomatoes started ripening, um, started rotting. But I got a perfectly ripe one, brought it into the house, sliced it open. It was green when ripe. It was absolutely delicious. It was identical in every way in flavor and quality to Cherokee purple and Cherokee chocolate, except we now have a green one. Save seeds from it. Shared them with people, always grew green, always grew delicious. So it, it seems as if we either have a cross that, because it involved a recessive trait, stabilized very, very quickly, or it is a flesh color mutation. The skin stayed yellow like in Cherokee chocolate, but now the flesh went from red to green. I'm not as interested in knowing exactly how it formed, except that we have a third um, Cherokee tomato that shares the flavor and the high yields and the good disease tolerance. And interestingly, that fellow I told you about, Alex Hitt, who was the first one to make a name for himself here growing Cherokee purples back in the early 90s, that is now the favored green flesh tomato amongst a lot of the chefs and farmers markets in North Carolina. So I've been the the Cherokee triumvirate has been pretty fortunate for me in terms of. Uh, allowing me to discover some really great surprises. Now, I don't call Cherokee chocolate and Cherokee green heirlooms yet because they're less than 20 years old. I actually call them tomorrow's heirlooms because they're they're not hybrids. They can be grown through from, say, seed. And I think that if my daughters and their kids are still growing them and loving them in 30 or 40 or 50 years, then maybe I'll, I'll allow them to be called heirlooms because to me then, they've stood the test of time that really, to me, defines an heirloom, something that's loved, it's handed down, it's cherished. And so it becomes something that people then give other people as a gift because they find value in it. Well, that's the perfect segue to this next one that's very beloved. And I think people are somewhat familiar with the story. And it's Mullen's Mortgage Lifter. Yeah. So Mullen's Mortgage Lifter, um, back... In that same time span, again, 1988, 1989, 1990, when I was making all my gardening friends, one of the letters I got was fascinating, and it was from a woman named Charlotte Mullins from West Virginia, and she was a tomato collector. And so her first letter to me was a list of all of the varieties she had, and I sent her a list of the varieties I had, and we we did a lot of swapping of our collections at the time. But one of the ones she sent me was her family's um, special selection of the mortgage lifter tomato. So mortgage lifter actually dates from the late 1920s, early 1930s. And the story is is really one of the best known stories amongst uh, heirloom aficionados. In fact, you know, the whole goal for me of why I like to do what I do is to get people to garden. And the most important target audience is is young people. A lot of the Seed Savers Exchange uh, core group was is quite elder, elderly because they discovered the organization in the 80s, and it's all about replacing ourselves. Even you know, even me in my early 60s, what's important to me is that my children garden, and their children garden, and everybody gardens. But if you can tell, if you can bring people into your yard and you're growing a mortgage lifter, and they ask about it, they'll say, wow, that's a huge tomato. And you can say, yeah, you want to know about that? It's Let me tell you the story. And you can tell them that there is a fellow named Mr. Biles who lived in West Virginia. 
and his goal was to create a big tomato. And the fact that he used a baby ear syringe to to squeeze pollen around the plants, and he worked at it for years. And at the end, he got this beautiful two to three pound tomato, and people from miles around heard about it. And he was selling plants for two fifty a piece back in the nineteen thirties, and he paid off the mortgage to his house. I mean, that's a great story. And so the kids may go, "Wow, can I taste it?" And they taste it, and then you give them some seeds. And their 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 mom and dad plant the seeds with them, and they grow their own margin lifters. This is how we grow new gardeners by using the wonderful stories that are attached to these varieties that are, that are just absolute treasures that we've got to keep going. So um, now there's one other little interesting tidbit about the Mullins mortgage lifter, and that when I planted her seeds, one seedling came up with this weird chartreuse colored foliage. And it turns out that it's a it's just a different colored leaf. It's a mutation to give it a bright green leaf. And if you grow just that plant, you get the enormous big mortgage lifted tomatoes. And if you save seeds from it, all of your seedlings have chartreuse foliage. But if you just go back to her regular mortgage lifter and save seeds from it, out of every 20 seeds, you will always get one that has the chartreuse foliage. So, you know, I, I know this is where I take the hobby that I'm into, into details that are almost at a crazy level. But I love the fact that you can notice that if something happens, you find something rare and then you can do something with that rare thing, like uh, develop tomatoes that have different color foliage, which I'm using that chartreuse foliage tomato as a breeding partner for some of our dwarf tomatoes so that we can start creating some of our new dwarf tomatoes with, with a different colored leaf um, chartreuse foliage. So it all connects. Um, so this is going to sound to your listeners like a whole bunch of different stories, but there's really only one overriding story above it, and it's just a love of gardening. And maybe associated with that, it's a love of sharing and teaching and helping people to experience just as much joy as I do, as I do this. It also speaks to the importance of being a patient gardener. When I was researching this echinacea episode that I did a while back, I had read the story of an echinacea grower in Holland that had seen something funny going on with the echinacea in his field, and he threw them all out. He thought they had a blight or a disease. In reality... It was a mutation, and it took him over a decade to see that same mutation present itself. And when it did the second time around, I mean, he was just jumping for joy because, you know, the the plant gods smiled on him, and here it was again, and now he knew what to do with it. And it seems like you have maybe more patience or maybe more curiosity than many growers if you kind of let these things evolve and you're testing and you're experimenting somewhat. Are you? Is this natural for you? So this this maybe is one of the things that make me a little. I'll call it weird, odd. Um, you know, I think they describe people sometimes as right brain, left brain. So people are either detail oriented or task focused, or they're into the appearance things, the nuances, the aesthetics, and. So my my training, so my PhD is in chemistry. So I went through the whole rigmarole of learning the scientific method and how to do projects. And it's not so much that I had a passion and love of chemistry because, you know, I, it led to my career that I did. But 
I never loved it like I love gardening. So, so what I had is a life with parallel tracks where I, I'm doing the chemistry and the science thing because it was putting food on the table. But then parallel to that, I was doing the gardening and the heirloom gardening and the seed saving because it fed my passion and it made me happy and fulfilled. And then when I got to retire, um, that was back in 2007 and focus fully on gardening. So it's gardening, it's amateur plant breeding, it's writing and blogging. I get to meld the two. And so when I garden, I, I tap into the detail science part of my brain. So when I look in my garden, it really is a laboratory for me where I can run experiments. And every garden for me has series of little projects. I'm either dehybridizing a pepper or I'm dehybridizing an eggplant or I'm stabilizing a new hot pepper or I'm looking at furthering along some of our, our dwarf tomatoes and getting that breeding project going or trialing heirlooms, all of these different projects. So that's, so what, what I need for that is some discipline um, to be able to observe differences and collect data. And so I have lots of Excel spreadsheets and lots of pictures and I like to analyze what goes on. But, but, but the other part of it is the aesthetic part. I love the colors and the history and the stories and the flavors. So gardening to me is kind of a perfect storm where I get to use both where the, the information that I love to seek because I love information and knowledge to combine that with the aesthetic part of, of the fact that we can eat these and we can cook creatively with them and preserve them. And I can put 10 tomatoes on a plate and I can run them the gamut from so tart and make a tongue curl to so sweet. You feel like you need to mouth, wash your mouth out afterwards because they're like candy and, and everything in between. And, uh, you know, so my wife quilts and I, I like to help her when she's looking at laying out because I have a good eye for color and what colors go together. And so it's, um, you know, I've, I've been called weird by lots of people. You can do it too. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Craig, I tell you what, I'm married to a Kimmy, so I know all about the left brain, right brain <laughs> dynamic. Yep, yep. And I always tell my husband, I'm like, you need me. I'm going to help you get in your right brain. That's my little saying. To yeah. Him. Well, let's talk about Green Giant. I loved your description uh -huh. of this tomato. Yeah, so Green Giant came to me, um, oh gosh, what the internet has provided. So, you know, when, you, when we think about how gardening has evolved over the years, the internet really came into play in the early 2000s when all of a sudden we've got discussion groups where you can, you can find groups of people and gather around a tomato. Garden Web is a good one. Tomatoville is the one I'm on now. But you know, Baker Creek had one with uh, with I dig your garden and and it's so you can have different folders. You know, all the pepper nuts can gather, all the tomato nuts can gather. But you get to meet people, and one of the people I got to meet, and we've shared seeds back and forth, was a fellow named Reinhard Kraft, and he gardens in Germany, and he also is a, a tomato holic. Um, he has a website where he has them alphabetized and has pictures of everything he grows. And so you look at the pictures and one day I was looking through and seeing what has he got in terms of something that I've not grown before. And I look, this is purely morphology. You look at the leaf shape, you look at the fruit shape and the fruit color. What type have I not grown before? So one day I saw this tomato and it looked like it was green when ripe and it looked like it had potato leaf foliage. So I sent him an email 
And he said, oh, yeah, that's that's one, a variety called Green Giant. And I think, and it's still a little bit fuzzy, the exact genealogy and history of the tomato, but it could be an offspring, strangely, of Lillian's yellow heirloom. So he sent me some seed. It's a, it's a vigorous, very tall growing potato leaf plant with these monstrous, smooth green tomatoes. Now, Cherokee green, the skin turns yellow when it ripens, so it has a picking indicator. It tells you when it's ripe. Aunt Ruby's German green and green giant are different in that they're clear skinned. And so the only way you can tell when they're ripe is the greenness of them takes on a slightly different character that once you see it, you've got it, but, it, but it's tricky. But if you, if you look at the bottom of the fruit, the blossom end, there will be a very pale pink blush. Now, aha, I told you about the pink blush with Lillian's yellow. Green giant does it as well. So I grew it the first year thinking, oh, this is just going to be a really interesting looking tomato. When I took the first bite of it, I couldn't believe how delicious it was. So my friend Lee came over. He tasted it. He was going to Cincinnati, Ohio for a tomato tasting. He took a green giant with him. It won first prize. The next year, we did a tomato palooza tasting. It was the favorite tomato there. So as I'm talking to you and telling you this story, it makes sense to me that Green Giant could very well be related to Lillian's Yellow Heirloom in that it carries the same incredible excellence, intensity, and complexity of flavor that puts both of them well, well up into my top 10. So um, I've found it stable. I've grown it every year. Um, I grew it this year. It was wonderful again. And it's, I don't know if I can call it an heirloom yet because it seems like uh, Reinhard Kraft discovered it maybe within the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, but it's open pollinated, meaning it's stable from save seed. And I guess I'll lump that into another of the tomorrow's heirloom categories, um, you know, just because it is just so wonderful. And it's really fun to do a tomato tasting with the green one ripes because you can, people just don't expect to take a bite of a tomato that is the color of their front lawn and to think it's one of the best tomatoes they've ever eaten. And it messes with your, your head a little bit because that's not what a, what a tomato is supposed to look like. And a tomato of that color, that's not what it's supposed to taste like. So. If people make their journey through heirlooms, what they find a lot of times is it really opens their mind and their palate up to accept lots of different combinations that they wouldn't ordinarily accept. And once again, I've taken your question and evolved you into all kinds of different places. <laughs> That's what you're supposed to do, Craig. So keep it up. I love it. I love it. Well, um, let's talk a little bit more about Sun Gold. I know you already mentioned it. I know it's one of your favorites. But talk to us a little bit more about this one. I don't want to gloss over it because it is sure. the tomato that you say in your book you would never not grow Sun Gold. No. So I, I became acquainted with Sun Gold in the late 80s. And so the first company to sell it, I believe, in England was Thompson & Morgan. And I saw it listed in their catalog. And right around the same time, Johnny's Selected Seed, which is one of my favorite companies, was selling it as well. And they were selling Sun Gold and one that they called Sun Cherry, which was a red version of it. And now um, it's a hybrid. And what happens with hybrids is... Uh, the, the Japanese company that creates Sun Gold, um, all companies that create hybrids, in fact, uh, that's very important pri proprietary information because there's a really, there's a real competitive advantage 
when companies know what are the two varieties that they bring together to create the hybrid. So the the whole popularity of hybrid tomatoes really evolved from 1949 when Burpee launched Big Boy, and Big Boy created a mania around tomatoes, and almost all of the tomato development from 1949 became around hybrids. That actually led to where a lot of the heirloom or non-hybrid varieties started going extinct because, um, you know, there's a lot of the catalogs were advertising hybrids. They were getting a lot of promotion. People weren't growing the Rutgers and the Marglobes and the Ferris wheels and the Peak of Perfections anymore. The Seed Savers Exchange coming along when they did in 75 helped to preserve those. And we owe a great debt of gratitude for them, for the Seed Savers forming. We wouldn't be growing a fraction of the tomatoes or anything that we grow today if they didn't form. So Sun Gold, we know there's a company that took two parents together to create this variety that's been around for about 30 years. We know that it's orange. It produces well. It cracks easily. So that if you've got, uh, if you're growing a tomato plant with, that's a Sun Gold and you know it's going to rain or you're about to water, pick them. Uh, when they look like they're a pretty ripe color because once you water them or once it rains, they'll all pop like little balloons and then they get very perishable after that. What makes Sun Gold particularly unique is it has a flavor that no one really knows how to accurately describe, but it is quite unique. And I know the early catalogs described it as a tropical fruit flavor. I don't know if I would use that except to say it tastes like Sun Gold and Sun Gold tastes like no other. And people for years now have been trying to do something called dehybridizing it. And I mentioned that term a little while ago when I talked about what I do, like to do with peppers and eggplant. Dehybridizing is if you're growing a hybrid that you like, but you want to see if you can get something just like it from save seed. And you grow out the hybrid, you save seed from it, you grow a bunch the next year. And if any one of those are similar to what you're aiming for, you save seed from that, you grow a bunch the next year. It can take eight, seven, eight, nine years or generations, but at some point you may be able to get at something that very, very closely approximates the parent that you're looking for, the hybrid. Well, with Sun Gold, people have tried and tried and tried and tried, and they've gotten red cherry tomatoes and pink cherry tomatoes and yellow cherry tomatoes and orange cherry tomatoes. None have had the unique, distinct flavor characteristic that makes Sun Gold so beloved. So... As I tell people, I, I am not anti-hybrid whatsoever. It's just that I've found there is more interest in growing heirlooms for me personally because I can tell the stories and save the seeds and get all of the different diversity of color, shape, size, flavor. But Sun Gold will be in my garden every year because it delivers something to me and my wife flavor-wise that no other tomato does. And uh, therefore, it gets a pretty high spot. Um, so no one can ever accuse me of being anti-hybrid because I will grow sun gold in my garden every year that I can. Well said, well said. And the hybridized <laughs> people are are clapping right now and appreciating <laughs> that, uh, you know, and when you have a love for something that really is boundless, I think you, you're more open to that. You know, you're not persnickety about tomatoes in that sense. There were two that you shared in your book that I loved the history of, and you did a great job of sourcing really old 
advertisements and different yeah. different things that were showing, you know, just just the sense of history with these. And the two, of course, that I'm talking about are Ferris Wheel and Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. So those, so those were part of my phase two uh, in my tomato passion. So phase one was family heirlooms. And then once I realized that I had really seen um, quite a lot of what is out there in terms of colors, sizes, and flavors, and, and shapes, I then turned uh, my eyes towards trying to locate <clears throat> varieties that my grandparents may have grown. And the reason that became such a special journey for me is because I, in many ways, owe my love of gardening to my grandfather. He, he had a, his name was Walter Gibbs. He had a big garden behind his house in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. When I was three or four years old, he would walk me through the garden. My mom would go to visit with my grandma and they'd talk, 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 talk. And my grandfather would say, oh, we got to get out of here. Let's go look at the garden. <laughs> he was like that for his whole life. And he was a very smart man. But, you know, when you walk into a place that, that has the good rich earth and dahlias that are twice as tall as you are and six foot tall tomato plants, you you start thinking, even in a young age, this looks like something that's really fun to do. Or at least I did at the time. So I thought when I, you know, when I was older and discovered that you could actually go and purchase at different antique shops and later on eBay, all of these old seed catalogs that dated from the time that he was gardening, I may be able to, even though I didn't know exactly what he grew, I could grow some of the ones that were contemporary with his gardens. And I went on a journey and I had purchased three or 400 seed catalogs and then I found that the USDA is a database that lets you use a search engine. And if you find things that are listed in catalogs, but they haven't been sold in decades, you can ask for a sample of seed and they send it to you. And then you can grow it. And then if you love it, you can make it available again by sharing it with other seed companies. Now, So I did that with a couple of hundred varieties. I think I pulled maybe two or 300 varieties out of the USDA and Many of them, maybe no one had seen them growing in a garden in, in decades. So it was a lot of fun to rediscover that. But sometimes you pick one out that just has a funny name. And when I, when I saw the name Ferris Wheel come up in a search engine, I knew it was from the 40s at least. But I didn't know anything about it. So I just asked for the seed. This is part of my growing the weird thing again, just, just for the heck of it. So I grew it and I got this wonderful big pink tomato with green shoulders. It, it looked a lot like another North Carolina heirloom named German Johnson, but it tasted almost like a brandy wine. So it, it was excellent. Then I collected a catalog that indicated that it dates from the late 1890s. And I realized how lucky is that to just serendipitously pull a tomato out because you like the name and it turns out it's historically significant. And you get this beautiful catalog image showing the Ferris wheel drawn with the tomato. And you realize people must have loved this tomato. But then when Burpee came out with Big Boy and Better Boy and Ultra Boy and all of these new things come out, people, Ferris wheel went in the back burner. And then the companies stopped selling it in their catalogs. And then people just forgot about it. And everyone who grew it passed on. Uh, Abraham Lincoln is a slightly different story in that it's, it, it was considered the premier release of the um, Buckbee Seed Company in 1923. Big one-pound red tomato, but the catalog said something interesting. 
growing on a plant that has unique bronze-tinged foliage. So I went in a search for that, and I ordered Abraham Lincoln from many seed companies. I got it out of the USDA, and it turns out that whatever was unique about that tomato when it was first offered in 1923 has become lost in the intervening years. And as far as I know, and if anybody listening to this has them, I would love to have the bronze foliage-colored, large-fruited, one-pound red Abraham Lincoln. But pretty much anything you grow now is is crossed. It's too small. It's too short. It has normal foliage. So the lesson there is that we have to really be careful about taking care of these rare old varieties because you can, they can become lost if people aren't careful of their seed saving and they become crossed with another variety. And then the original seed stock stops growing it because it's lost its germination, it's too old. You can actually lose a variety for good. And what's what I'm sad about is it seems like we have lost our original Abraham Lincoln. And you think 1923, that's actually not all that long ago, but it the original seems to have gone extinct. Yeah, that is a pity. You know, I used to work for the AAA Association, the American Automobile Association. Uh That was my first job after I got my master's Uh in industrial relations and I was working there. And Uh one of my first jobs was to do orientation. This is back when a company used to hire people and then they'd take you through a day-long orientation and you'd get paid for it. I don't think companies do that much anymore. But they had a wonderful history and I remember I was doing this in the early 90s and people were so struck by the fact that when we were going through this history, our automobile association had only been around since the early 1900s and people yeah, forget yeah. but we weren't driving cars, you know, much over 100 years ago. So a lot yes. can happen in just 100 years. Advances in technology, absolutely, but also where we set aside different plant varieties because we're excited by the new varieties and we stop paying attention to yeah, some of these plants yeah. and and to our detriment. If you look at seed catalogs in the 1880 to 1910, 1920 range and look at something like sweet peas, you will see maybe a catalog will have 120 varieties of sweet pea. And not only, and they'll have them in separate colors. You can get 10 different whites, 10 different pinks, 10 different blues, 10 different purples. And what's happened is that must have been very costly for them to do that. But gardening must have been. There just must have been such a boom back then in gardening. And what happens now is hobbies evolve and people have less time and maybe gardeners get smaller. Um, You know, maybe people that the the places that grow sweet peas well are are shrinking a little bit as things are getting a little bit warmer. And so all of a sudden now, if you look at sweet peas, the best you can do is maybe a half a dozen varieties and you never see separate colors anymore. Um, So it is kind of sad that now, tomatoes are, they buck the trend in that net we here gardening in 2017 are the luckiest tomato growers in all of history. Because if you look at the old seed catalogs, no catalog ever held more than 15 or 20 or 30 tomato varieties. And now we can grow thousands and thousands. So certain crops, and, it, and maybe it's 
right back to the very beginning of what we talked about. There is such a love for tomatoes, and maybe it is inherently such an interestingly diverse crop just because of its particular genetics, and it throws so many different combinations of size, shape, color, flavor, that is the lucky one. And apples may be the same. When you, There are hundreds and hundreds of different types of heirloom apples that have the same type of interesting color and shape and size diversity. So a few of our crops have escaped the funnel that has limited the amounts that we can grow. And uh, we got to take a lesson from that and make sure that we preserve what we've got of everything that we can grow so we don't you know, we end up don't end up with just a few things that are that are kind of ordinary at the end of the day. That's exactly right. Why don't we wrap things up here? And I want to talk about two more sections of your book. One is sure. the tomatoes that changed your gardening life. I'll walk you through those, and then we'll meet some of the new varieties. and And that terrain seems to be all about the dwarfs. So, yeah. yeah, so let's start out with the tomatoes that changed your gardening life. And you begin with Anna Russian. Yes. Okay. So Anna Russian was in that cluster right around the same time as Mexico Midget, the same time as oh, Lillian's Yellow Heirloom. And it's just one more example of... Why did Brenda Hellenius of Corvallis, Oregon, decide to share this wonderful pink heart-shaped tomato with me? And uh, it was a variety that her grandfather, Kenneth Wilcox, got in the 30s or 40s from a Russian immigrant. And, you know, here I am gardening in Pennsylvania, and I plant in a Russian out there, and it was heart-shaped and pink. And I thought, well, most of the pink hearts that I've grown to date have been kind of dry and a little bit mealy and not very good. The flavor just blew me away. So again, one more, one more notch in that um, tote list of tomatoes that are just convincing me totally that heirlooms and open pollinated varieties are the way to go. Just because they they can just be so delightful in terms of the story and the palate and the beauty. How about Tiger Tom and Ruby Gold? So Tiger Tom and Ruby Gold were sent to me by a fellow named John Hartman. And Tiger Tom, uh, he got along with a variety called Czech's Excellent Yellow that I was sent from a Czechoslovakian tomato breeder collector. And I grew that one for the first time in 1987. So in 1986 is when I started my little contest of, I need to convince myself that if I grow heirlooms I'm going to get adequate yields and the plants aren't just going to go down to disease immediately like a lot of the the more hybrid pushing seed catalogs would say. I'm going to see how they do and I'm going to mine the seed savers exchange and collect some heirlooms and then I'm going to order some hybrids and I'm going to have little contests for a few years. And I actually have the summary of that contest in the back of my book as an appendix where I I talk about all of the comparative yields and flavors. Tiger Tom was this tomato machine, and it looked like it was producing striped ping pong balls. And for people that claim that they're looking for that acidic, tart tomato of their youth, grow some Tiger Tom because it will curl your toes. It has such a nice, tart bite to it. People who find a lot of the heirlooms and a lot of today's tomatoes too sweet would find it delightful. And it yielded like crazy. I think I picked over 20 pounds of plant. 
And it just became one of those stepping stone varieties. And then included in that and also grown in 1987 was Ruby Gold. And the reason some of these are on the list of changing my tomato life is, you know, when you when you grow mostly red tomatoes and you see, oh, these are nice, you know, big boys are big and whoppers are big and romas are pear-shaped and sweet 100s are a small and cherry-shaped. That's all well and good. But I grew them. I'm proud of that. They're mine. But then when you're growing your first yellow-red bicolor, which ruby gold is, it's a mystery. And, you know, what color is it going to be? How will I know when it was ripe? What does a red-gold tomato taste like? Tiger Tom, striped. I've never grown a striped tomato. What does a striped tomato look like? And it, it's, it, it's not that all of them ended up on my top 10 list in terms of flavor. In fact, the big yellow-red tomatoes like pineapple and Georgia streak and ruby gold, I love to look at them. Um, but they're not my favorite, favorite ones to eat because I tend to like a full flavored balanced tomato and Ruby gold is so sweet and fruity. If I was blindfolded I may feel like I was eating a peach instead of a tomato. Now, for some people, they may think that's absolutely superb. Now I think it's a great cheeseburger or grilled cheese tomato. So I would use a Ruby gold or any of the big yellow red bicolors as an accompaniment, sort of as a second violin rather than a brandy wine, which actually, if you're eating a brandy wine or a green giant, lily is yellow, Cherokee purple, you just want to put them on a plate with a little salt, pepper, olive oil, and don't cover any of their excellence up. So so I think um, a lot of what I collected in 1986, 87, 88 are all important to me because they pointed me in the direction that I would end up going. On this next one, do you pronounce it? Oh, Bissignano number two. Bisignano. Um, Bisignano, yeah, Bisignano number two. So that that one I tried out in 1980. It's either 87 or 88. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm doing everything in this off the top of my head. So we'll have to see how good my memory is. You can give me the memory test, but even at 61, my memory is still almost photographic. So it's uh, oh, wow. again another another notch in my weirdness factor. But what the heck. Um, so Bessignano came with rave reviews because the, the blurb in the Seed Savers Exchange said that this tomato won one of the Victory Gardens contests, and it was brought over from Italy by a man named Mr. Bissignano, and it was sent to me by a woman from Massachusetts, and it was the first tomato I grew where the tomatoes on the plant were all different shapes, and some were round, and some were flat, and some were pear-shaped. Turns out that's just part of the genetics. It, it produces variably shaped tomatoes absolutely intense, delicious taste. So it's not only great as a um, an eating tomato or salad tomato or slicing tomato, but the sauce that it makes is so intense. It's, it's very meaty. It doesn't have that many seeds. And so it cooks down very quickly into a nice sauce or a paste. So again, as you can tell, I kind of not only have a story for every tomato, but I have the ideal use attached to it in my head. I look at it and I'm like, this is exactly what I want to use this tomato for. <laughs> and this is what makes your insight invaluable because it's one thing to grow it. It's another thing to know what to do with it after you've got it. How about Polish? Ah, uh, Polish. So Polish was sent to me by this really wonderful man named Bill Ellis, who used to teach history and he still may do it at state college, Pennsylvania. I actually only spoke to him a few years ago. And, uh, so the first year I got Brandywine, I got a version of it that didn't taste very good. I got it from a company that must have used a seed source that wasn't true. I didn't think much of it. 
But the same year I got the brandy wine that didn't taste like it should be, um, I got this Polish from Bill Ellis, and he got it from a woman in Cunningham, Pennsylvania, uh, claimed that it hailed from Poland, but it had this enormous potato-shaped leaves. It it just grew different than brandy wine. It produced like crazy. I think I might have harvested 25 or 30 pounds of fruit, but it, Polish probably was the first non-red tomato that knocked my socks off flavor-wise. So once I got the real, a real good strain of brandy wine, that I would say that is maybe a tick more intensely flavored than Polish, but Polish is absolutely superb. Um, so I like to tell people Nepal was maybe the red tomato that got me into moving away from hybrids in the first place. And Nepal was a, a red that I got from Johnny's in 1986 and started me down this path. But Polish was probably my first favorite heirloom tomato where I thought tomatoes can taste just in, incredibly better than, I, than even beyond my imagination. There are two yellows in this section that you say changed your life. The first <laughs> is yellow-white, and the other one uh -huh. is hues. Yes. So yellow-white, if you grow it, and it's very hard to photograph accurately, but it is really an ivory tomato, and it has a pale, pearly pink blush on the bottom. But the reason that this one is so special to me is the story associated with it, and that it is a 1920s wedding present that was given to a woman named Viva Lindsay on a wedding day from the Martin family. And so that is a story that I actually love to tell my audiences when I go out and do a talk, because when you think of contrasting that to life today and, you know, registering with some big company, some big department store for people's wedding gifts, you know, and I think, what would someone say today if, uh, you know, they're up in the altar and here's your wedding gift and they open it, it's a packet of 10 seeds of a white tomato. Now, a gardener may be pretty excited about it, but a non-gardener may not be too thrilled. So I love that tomato because it shows the changing times that we live in and how down-to-earth and basic things were way back then, um, you know, decades before I was in, on the earth. Hughes um, is just a marvelous tomato, and there was a fellow named Archie Hook who has since passed on. And I got this tomato from him when he was in his late 70s. He lived in Indiana. And he would raise this tomato, and it's an enormous one-and-a-half to two-pound bright yellow, kind of the same color as Lillian's yellow, but the plant is very, very different, and the flavor is very different. The year that I grew Hughes for its first test, that one plant gave me 40 pounds of tomatoes, and that's the plant that made me realize that heirloom varieties can out-yield the hybrids and that you know everything kind of from that point on that's the tomato that was the proof of concept tomato that told me i don't have to really worry going forward whether it's an heirloom or a hybrid i'm going to grow a tomato based on its parameters or whether i love the story or not or whether i want the color or not and the rest can then take care of itself but hughes is just a wonderful tomato if in fact uh I think I may be holding a cluster of hues on a picture in the back of my book. Um, and I'm, I'm 
pretty happy holding it. So that's one way to get me smile is let me hold a big cluster of hues that are a pound and a half each. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. Well, the very last one on this list is one called Giant Syrian. Yeah. Another one of the Charlotte Mullins tomatoes. And uh, so each so each one of these tomatoes has an interesting type of story associated with it. And she sent that to me. Um, it was an heirloom she got from someone in Ohio, I believe. And it is a big, red, heart-shaped tomato that's delicious. So a few years uh, later, maybe maybe 10 or 15 years ago, when the Seed Savers Exchange was starting to sell seeds themselves, I noticed that they were selling giant cerium. But I noticed that the picture was of an oblate pink tomato, kind of a flattish pink tomato. And I mentioned it to them. And in fact, I it, they recognized that the seed that they have for that is not correct. And so one year I went out to their camp out and I brought with them, I brought with me a, um, some authentic giant Syrian that they could save seeds from. And same thing happened with Mexico midget. And the, the lesson here is that even seed companies often will not exactly know what they're, what the tomato that they're selling is supposed to be like. And a lot of times they will trust just a description or their seed source, or they'll grow something out and think, ah, so that's what this is supposed to be. So I think the the lesson is um, to always try to find someone who knows their tomatoes well. If you're growing something and you know what it's supposed to be like, but it's not growing like the description, um, there's some good resources to use. I mean, people can email me anytime, refer to the Seed Savers Exchange Yearbook, there's a great website called Tatiana's Tomato Base, which is essentially a tomato wiki. And it's one of these self-editing people can go in and add information all the time. That's good information on thousands and thousands of tomatoes. But if something doesn't work well for you the first time you grow it, give it a second chance because each tomato variety has its own personality and will react differently with your garden the way you grow it in different seasons. There are many, many more variables and these are more variable than people really think about it. So if someone raves about a tomato and you try it out and it doesn't do well for you, check your seed source, check the description, think about your conditions. I like to use the two or three strikes and you're out rather than the one strike and you're out when it comes to trying really, really well-regarded tomatoes in your garden. But then at the end of the day, you may find that particular varieties just do not thrive in your conditions. And that's and then it's fine to move on. And thankfully, we have so many options now. There's no need to bang your head against the wall and, and try something for five or six or seven years ago, uh, in a row and give up valuable gardening space if that variety just doesn't like where you where you are growing it or how you are growing it. An example is I cannot grow green zebra or yellow pear in my yard because each one gets diseased so quickly that those varieties genetically do not like interacting in my in my yard under my conditions. So I've said, nope, I'm not going to grow those anymore. I'm going to try some other ones. See, now I think that's very helpful for people to hear that because you know, so often the advice runs contrary to that, right? So if you have a plant yes. that dies in a spot, don't replace it with the same plant. It obviously isn't happy there. Let's move on. And what yep. you're saying is don't do that with tomatoes. Cut them a little bit of slack before you, you know, quickly eliminate them as an option in your yard. 
And I think uh, I think the reason is because most heirlooms, of course, not being open pollinated, there is a variability. There there shouldn't be, but it's inevitable that there could be a variability in seed sourcing. And an example I will I will give is that since I'm one of the first people to ever see what Cherokee purple is supposed to be like, because I received it in 1990 and I grew it and I named it and I know what it, I, I had that fixed in my mind. And in fact, I have some seed saved that's only one or two generations removed from that. And every now and then I'll go back and grow it just to remind myself, but I'll be at markets and I've tasted other people's um, Cherokee purples. They've grown from various seed sources. They're not Cherokee purples anymore. They're too big or they're too small. But when you cut them open, the interior seed structure is not right or the flavor is not right. And what's happened is through the years that a particular seed company has lost, it's the same thing as the Abraham Lincoln problem. The seed company has lost the purity of their seed for that Cherokee purple and what they're selling isn't Cherokee purple anymore. So it's a risk. And um, that's why it's always good to, you know, Google around, ask questions, visit boards, um, you know, after this podcast, I'll be very happy to join the community that you have and take and answer questions that people may have about tomatoes and just be another resource that people can tap into just to ask those questions because it's daunting. Um, there's just a lot of stuff out there and nobody can have all of this information in their control. So uh, we all depend on each other to to teach each other. Well, you're right. And the thing that I'm I'm struck by just listening to you is how complicated tomatoes are compared to so many other things that you can grow, whether it's edible or ornamental. These are sophisticated plants. They can be. And, and I think not only do you have a lot of varieties, but they are not the easiest plants to grow depending on where you grow them. So when I gardened in Pennsylvania, and you'd have a good winter kill, and the disease pressure wasn't that great, I actually thought growing tomatoes was easy, easy up there. Uh, now having gardened in Raleigh for 45 years, the disease pressures and the critter pressures and the weather complexities are much greater. And so, uh, you know, people people take great um, happiness when they see my blogs and I'm telling people all the ways that I am failing any given particular season. Um, because it's real. It's, you know, not every one of my years are great. Not every one of my years are good. Sometimes I have the reasons for it and sometimes I don't. Um, but really gardeners only learn great stuff when they do make a mistake or learn why something went wrong, because then they can adjust and do something different the next year to alleviate it or to remedy it. So, uh, you know, it makes us, none of us, I don't think there is such a thing as, as a great, great gardener. All we are, all of us, are on the path of learning how to be better gardeners. And the ability to share that information with each other is what makes it such a fantastic hobby. Well, you're absolutely right. And I love it when I get an expert such as yourself that is acutely aware of that. And I often say to many guests that... If you ever read People Magazine, and I'm not a huge People Magazine reader, but they have that section where they're like, celebrities, they're just like us. And whenever I hear somebody in the gardening space that is, you know, renowned as an expert, I always think, Craig LeHoulier, he's just like us. He has problems with tomatoes, too. You know, you can't, it's just, just because you're an expert doesn't mean you have just rampant success all the time. And so I love that you, you know, freely admit that and humble yourself with 
with the rest of us because gardening can be extremely humbling. It is the most humbling thing in the world, I'll tell you. And uh, it, 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 there's a tr- gardening is a trigger for so many reasons to get depressed in the morning. When the deer eat your favorite plant, when the disease takes down your plant, when the thunderstorm is coming through, knock everything down. So, you know, it, it's true. If, if anything can keep you humble in this life and modest, it is it is just digging into gardening and finding out all of the various things that can go wrong. <laughs> I did listen to a couple of podcasts that you were on. One thing that you said in one of them that caught my attention is you said you had been studying how tomatoes grew and you had discovered <laughs> that in the course of a week, they can grow 14 inches. That's over a foot. Yeah. And this yeah. is also where I think gardeners can kind of become flummoxed because you can feel like you have everything under control. You just maybe got a Sunday afternoon, you got out to the garden, you're feeling really good about it. Then you have to go back to work. Then the real world calls. And by the following weekend, it has grown so much, you're all of a sudden overwhelmed. That can happen with tomatoes. Yeah. The way I look at it is you turn your back on them and you've lost them. And so and I'm I'm retired. I pretty much garden as my job now. I mean that's that's kind of what I do. I'm I'm out there tending the garden, and what tempers it is when it gets to 95 or 100 degrees, and the heat index is at 110. You find you physically you just can't go out there. So you garden three hours in the morning, and then you just have to leave it be. But you know, disease starts on the bottom of plants, and it starts working its way up, and all of a sudden you didn't get out there the last few days to remove the lower spotted foliage. So that proliferates and that's moving up the plant. And like you allude to also the, you've, you've gained another foot on your plants. Now they're starting to flop over. So it, it is something that um, you can put as much or as little to uh, into. And the more you put into it, sometimes the more you get out of it. Um, one of my big learnings this year was I have less plants and I offered them more space more spacing between the plants meant less foliage touching, which meant less foliage disease. I had a higher total yield by growing less plants because my plants were healthier. And so, you know, I hit that trade-off point where I tried to squeeze so much in last year that I had a lot of premature plant death due to disease, which curtailed the yield. So it's not always about how much you pack in, it's how you pack them in, how you space them, and then like you say, how you tend them and how often you're out there. I The other thing, you probably heard me say this on the podcast, I love, it's one of my favorite things to think of, is I think the happiest gardeners are more focused on enjoying the journey and a little less focused on just the destination. So if you get to the end of the year and you haven't canned all of the quartz you want or you haven't picked all of this or that, but you've gotten exercise and you've heard the birds sing and you've spent beautiful days outside and you have a sense of accomplishment and all kinds of wonderful pictures and things you've learned away along the way. That's a really successful garden. And it's not even tied into what you picked at the end of the year. It's picked into the overall gardening experience that you got to enjoy all of those days that you did it. 
That's exactly right. And, you know, I interviewed Marta McDowell, the author of All the President's Gardens, and she's come out with her new book about the world of Laura Ingalls Wilder, and she's talking about the plants Mm -hmm. of the prairie. But one of the things I love about talking to Marta is that she had this entire career as a programmer before she ever Mm -hmm. started becoming a garden writer or teaching classes in horticulture. And Marta Mm -hmm. always says, every time I talk to her, she'll say, no experience in life is wasted. And I think that's really what you're saying here is that whether you have success or whether you fail, you've still gleaned something from this. And and in your case, that's helped you so often appreciate when you see these variations or when you see trends happening among your plants and you've grown thousands and thousands that means you've had yep. thousands and thousands of failures too. Oh yeah, it's it's been it's been really special. And uh, and you know, I was just thinking. I think I did a blog the other day where I was my, my peak harvest is mid July to mid August with a little bit in the fringe. So that's one out of twelve. So we're actually picking and eating and processing and feed saving tomatoes for eight percent of a calendar year. That's pretty concentrated. So the rest of that time. You're gardening, but uh, what you're doing is you're planting and you're, you're pruning and you're feeding and you're watering and you're seeding and, and so, or you're learning, you're doing research. So if, if you realize that only 10% of the year is going to be, roughly speaking, the time of your harvest, it means, yeah, you better enjoy the rest of it. You better get a kick out of the journey because that's what you're going to spend most of your time doing is, is leading up to the grand finale. And the grand finale is when you've got your counter covered with, 50 pounds of tomatoes and you, you don't want to eat anymore, but you don't want them to go to waste. <laughs> it's like, what do I do with all these tomatoes? You can, you make salsa, you roast sauce, you, you know, you visit the neighbors. You Tomatoes are much easier to give away than zucchini. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, that is for sure. Yeah. Well, and you never hear someone saying, gee, I need a new tomato recipe in the same way you do with eggplant or zucchini or squash. Yep. Exactly. Yep. yep it's true. Well, let's talk about the new frontier. Let's jump on the enterprise with you and go where <laughs> few people are going, but you know all about. Uh, take us to Dwarfland or wherever we're headed and give us <laughs> give us a, a taste of what's coming and how listeners sure. can be maybe a little bit more tomato forward than their neighbors who are still yeah. growing heirlooms and, and hybrids. Yeah. What's on the horizon? So the idea for this came back in, oh, I'd say, all, well, all along when we've been selling seedlings, and we've been selling plants in Raleigh since the late 90s, the main question often is, what what do you have that grows well in a pot? Or what do you have for a plant that tastes good, but it's not going to grow a foot a week? It, it's, it's people who love the indeterminates heirlooms, but they don't love the fact that most of the heirlooms are indeterminate and grow all over the place. So, you know, I was thinking about that a lot. And the answer was not a whole lot because determinate varieties, there aren't as many, there's not as much diversity. They don't taste as good. And there were a very few dwarf stature tomatoes. It is a distinct genetic type. And how I think about them, dwarf varieties are, they're like indeterminates, but they only grow at half the vertical rate. So if you're, you know, if you've got an eight foot turkey purple at the end of the year, your dwarf variety will only be four feet tall. So, but you can have the great flavors and the diversity of sizes and colors, or potentially you could. 
So I met a friend on Garden Web who liked to do plant breeding. We, we batted this around and we had a clue from a catalog that talked about a variety called New Big Dwarf and how they did it. They crossed Ponderosa, which is a big pink tomato, with a smaller dwarf tomato, dwarf champion, and ended up with a dwarf with big pink fruit. Well, I got New Big Dwarf out of the USDA and grew it, and it was really good. The reason no one took it further is because no one had the diversity of heirlooms to use as crossing partners. So the time to do this project was perfect because you want to enlarge the number of gardeners, and to do that, it meant you want to introduce container gardening to people, varieties that will do well in containers so they can garden on their deck or patio or or wherever. And so Katrina was doing some crosses, and I assembled a team. And I guess you could just say that what's happened is between 2006 and 2017, over 300 people have had their fingers in this project, and almost every state in the United States, someone has been involved, um, several countries around the world. And the whole goal of the project was to create something together, make it stable so that people could save seed from it. So again, we're creating tomorrow's heirlooms. But then once we have something really good, we'll just give it to a seed company because we wanted this to be open source, altruistic, and just fulfilling the needs of gardeners. And we now have 70 varieties in various seed catalogs that we just pretty much developed and gave away. And some of them are amongst my very, very favorite varieties. And we're, so we cracked the nut of the large, different colored heirloom slicing varieties. And we now have big purple ones, brown ones, green ones, white ones, yellow ones, bicolors. We have some heart-shaped ones in different colors. And the focus of the project now, which continues on, is cherry dwarf-growing cherry tomatoes and dwarf-growing paste tomatoes. And so, you know, there's always opportunities for people to become involved. They can just drop me an email and uh, we can roll people in. Um, my next book, I want to write about how we did this because it's really no, no breeding project has ever been carried out in the way that we carried it out, where it's pretty much out in the open, uh, using all amateurs or volunteers, and at the end of the day, not expecting a cent from it, except the satisfaction of creating a variety that will live on and people will find of use. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, one company in particular, Victory, strives to carry all of our releases. Uh, they're out in Oregon. Um, there are other companies, uh, Sample Seed Shop, Tatiana's Tomato Vase, Heritage Seed Market, Fruition Seeds that are starting to jump on the bandwagon now and have and are starting to offer more of them. And I know we have at least another 10 or 15 we hope to release within the next few months, and we'll be looking for other smaller seed companies. The reason we want to pick, a, pick smaller seed companies to do the releases is we want to give smaller companies chances to compete with the big ones. And if we give smaller seed companies something they can't get from anywhere else, then it gives them a little bit of a leg up. And of course, once they offer it, anybody can get it and save seeds from it and other companies can jump on. But it's just that release. We want different companies to have the chance to do a feature. So, you know, it's uh, people can read about it on my website and click um, the projects link or, um, find the varieties. Uh, if you just search Dwarf Tomato Project, you, it has its own website. But it's been a lot of fun, and it continues to offer surprises. Um, 
One of the ones we've got is a dwarf growing paste tomato that's 10 to 12 ounces, red with gold stripes, and utterly delicious. But it's only in the third or fourth generation, so it's going to take three or four more years until that one's ready to go. But people could jump in and start playing with us about it and, you know, try it out and see what they think. I love that. And in your book, you talk about this yellow variety called Dwarf Mr. Snow. That's a cool name. And then Rosella Purple. Yeah. So Mr. Snow came about, um, it's actually almost white. And when we moved to Raleigh, there was somebody who writes columns in the Raleigh News and Observer named A.C. Snow, who was the first one to take an interest in what I'm doing with heirlooms. And he came over and interviewed me and wrote a column about me. And his hair is white and his name is Snow. And we had this nice white tomato. And I thought, let's name a tomato after him. And then he wrote a column uh, not long after that saying that this tomato is the first thing that anyone has ever named after him. So we've had a nice little back and forth about it. Um, wonderful tomato, 10 to 12 ounces, potato leaf, dwarf stature plant, just utterly delicious. And then Rosella Purple is essentially just like a dwarf growing version of Cherokee Purple, uh, 10 to 14, sometimes up to a pound. Purple tomatoes, utterly delicious flavor. And I'm trying to think, that came out of the Sleepy family. And we had, when we did the crosses, we ended up using the original seven dwarfs names from the movie. But because we've done 90 crosses, we ran out of those names quickly. So we've had to go into weird places. We've got a Sleazy family. We've got a, you know, we've we've gotten creative with our names, believe me. Um, They're just families that we pull different leads from. And Rosella Purple is one of my favorites. Um, my favorite yellow is Dwarf Sweet Sue, and I named that after my wife because she's sweet and the tomato's sweet, and it's most people's favorite dwarf, so she's pretty happy. Um, my daughter Caitlin has one named Katie Did. Um, my daughter Sarah has Serendipity. So when you discover a tomato, you get to name it. And when you get to name tomatoes, uh, Petrina in Australia like to use different birds and flowers in Australia. I like to use different family members. Um, People come up with all different ways to name tomatoes, but it's not as easy as you think to come up with something new and different and creative. So uh, it tests the brain a little bit. Well, I think this has tested the brains of lots of listeners (laughs) as they think about all of the different ways that they can grow tomatoes now or all the different varieties. There are over 33 in your book called Epic Tomatoes. It's a tremendous resource, and it's beautiful, too, which is fantastic. If folks want to get a hold of you, Craig, how can they reach you? To get the books, they're they're available everywhere. So Epic Tomatoes and probably the Strawbale book will be at their local bookshops. They're on Amazon. If people want signed copies, they can email me at NC Tomato Man, all one word. Uh, So as in North Carolina Tomato Man, but just the NC part at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, they can read about me and my projects and look at my blog on my website, which is just uh, www.craiglehulier, C-R-A-I-G-L-E-H-O-U-L-L-I-E-R.com. And, or they can find me on Facebook, um, Twitter, and Instagram. And pretty much my handle on all of this stuff is NC Tomato Man. So the best way to find me is if you Google NC Tomato Man, all one word, you find my blog, you find my books. Um, it's a little weird, I know, but it's stuck. <laughs> I'm an, I was anointed with that years ago, and I figured what the heck, it works. Awesome. And you're a Red Sox fan. 
Yes, I actually. So I guess maybe the, maybe they're not the great secret, but I watch every Red Sox game. Being a New Englander, I'm a Red Sox, Patriots, Celtics, Bruins fan, and I've been watching every Red Sox game on my computer every night. And while I'm watching the Red Sox, I'm usually answering gardening emails. So if any baseball terminology slips into my gardening answers, that's the reason. Well, and if any baseball terminology does, it's going right over my head. I tell you, one of my first jobs, one of my first jobs when I was in high school, I was a playback engineer at our local radio station, and I had to listen to the Minnesota Twins games, which sometimes would go, uh, you know, into the early morning, of course, if they had a, co- a game on the West Coast. But my husband, yep. Phil, is a huge sports fan. And so uh-huh. at the time we were dating and I'd call him and I'd say, I, you know, what's going on? I have no idea. <laughs> and he, lo- you know, he loves it. And so he could help me understand because I just needed to know when to jump in and play the commercials, you know, during the commercial yep. spots. But every night, the last duty that I had was to listen to... Uh, John and Herb review the game and they would do these little promos and I had to record their promos. And so that's my oh, that's my little uh, connection to baseball and whatever knowledge <laughs> I gained during that time, I have since lost. Yeah. Well, Craig, thank you so much for being on the show today. This was truly a treat to talk to someone who's so knowledgeable and so passionate about tomatoes. That doesn't happen every day. And I'm thrilled that you'll be in the listener community. I'm sure that people will be asking about different varieties that they've heard about. And I know you love to answer those questions. So thank you so much. I do. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure meeting you, being on the show. And I just look forward to hearing from people. And however our paths cross in the future, I look forward to it. Well, that's it for our show today, featuring epic tomato varieties with Craig LeHoulier. I hope you enjoyed learning all about the different tomato varieties that Craig featured on today's show. Did you get your list made? I know I've certainly got some ambitious goals for next summer. Anyway, once more, a big thank you to Craig for sharing his expertise with us and for following his passion so far down the road and never giving up. I mean, what would the world of tomatoes look like today if Craig didn't go all in on tomatoes? He just kept going. So thanks for that, Craig. I'm so thankful to my team at Podfly Productions. I want to thank my editor, Eric Begay, Ein Kadena, my copywriter, and David Gregerson, my project manager. And just a reminder that I'll have all of the generous information that Craig shared today over on my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And when you get there, just click on podcast and it'll connect you to all of the episodes for the show. I'd also like to thank the women that make up my listener advisory board, Beth Engel, Beth Gardens in Illinois. She works at Griffin, a national brokerage firm and one of the finest companies in horticultural service. And Beth is also a board member of the PPA, the Perennial Plant Association. 
I'd like to thank Denise Pugh. Denise gardens in North Mississippi and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine. Amy Von Achen, Patricia Chandler Newport. Patricia is the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens out of Kego Harbor, Michigan. Deb Gibson and Peggy Ann Montgomery. Peggy Ann is the brand manager at American Beauty's Native Plants, and she was featured back in episode 553, where we talked all about native plants and how you can incorporate them into your garden. Well, you guys, by the time this show airs, it's the end of September. October is closing in. And you know what that means? We need to get out to our gardens and we need to take care of all the stuff, all of the things that we want to get addressed before next year, before winter closes in on us. So don't stop short this year. Get out there, do what needs to be done. I know I want to power wash a ton of stuff outside and just get it super clean before winter hits. I've got containers I want to attend to, and I've got some beds that I'm actually just going to mow down. So I'm going to have my son come out with the weed whipper and help me take down a lot of that plant material that I don't want for next year and do the work now so that those beds are ready for spring. So don't give up. Don't stop short. Get out there. Get done what needs to be done. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.